Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all of the masterpieces and the trash pieces of genre cinema. I'm Gary. And I'm Chris. And we're back. We're alive after a little delay. Yes. Feeling much better. Yes. Yeah, that bitch COVID getting in the way. Our apologies. Yes. Uh, but we're back. Uh, it's not Christmas Eve as we had originally planned. But, you know what? There's There's no certain time of year to discuss these films. I mean, there is, but I mean, I'm just trying to make us sound better, so... <laughs> Hopefully you're still in a festive spirit, because yeah. we're here today. Your, your Christmas tree's probably still up. Yeah, so if there we go, that to counts. day of release, your Christmas tree's probably still up. People so call it the pretend. Christmas week, so there we go. Um, yeah, so we are here today with our latest original versus remake threesome, and we're discussing all three versions of Black Christmas. Yes. Finally. Start after all this time. Starting with your poll results. 1974 is the obvious winner. Uh, gaining 92% of the vote on the first round. And 100% on the second round. 2006 got 8% of the vote. 2019 got 0% of the vote. Now, if you'd asked us last week, you'd be like, ha, good, you deserve that. Um... Ask us today, and that's a little harsh. Well, it's it's not a little harsh. Uh, no, in comparison, I suppose in it's comparison, actually in comparison to the original film, one on one. Yeah. The original film absolutely. should get a hundred percent, and then a hundred percent. Absolutely. There is absolutely no denying mm-hmm. that. The weird anomaly is two thousand and six <laughs> getting any votes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is the that is the weird one. Yeah. Yeah, that's. There's no way on this earth that 2006 is better than the original. No, it, it's... Yeah. And I'm not even going to try and <laughs> justify it in my head. It's... No. It's, it's just a very wrong opinion. Uh, so getting into it, Black Christmas 1974, directed by Bob Clark. The uh, genius who brought us the likes of The Karate Dog, Baby Geniuses 1 and 2. Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things, She-Man, A Story of Fixation, Porky's 1 and 2, Rhinestone, A Christmas Story, and many more. Yeah, yeah, loads of very um, prominent during the 80s. Prominent? Yeah. I'm going to stick with that word. Um, Well, 70s mainly, isn't it? 80s, really, is when he was probably most famous. I suppose. Paul uh, Keys. Yeah, that's a Christmas true. Story. I also get Christmas stories in the eighties. So um, yeah, really well known director. Uh, good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, yeah. Kind of situation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it it's as um it probably shouldn't be a surprise that he got his start in horror. Um, but it's still quite weird that he two complete different sides of the coin with Black yeah. Christmas and A Christmas Story. Yeah. They're two Christmas films that are polar opposites to uh-huh. each other. Budget $625,000 uh, and it made $4.1 million worldwide. Oh, well done. I mean, $625,000, the film probably didn't even need that. Like, this is minimalism at its best. Well, people need to get paid, guys. Yes, I, I know, but I mean... For other things and that, you know, he must have spent nothing like the practical effects is fucking done. No. You know? Um, and that, that, that was not as sharp as they are in this film without having to true. lay down a few that, dollars. That was a compliment, by the way. I wasn't saying that uh, no one should be paid. 
Um, we're getting into the trivia. In 1986, Olivia Hussey met producers for the film Roxanne since they were interested in casting her for the title role. Roxanne co-star Steve Martin met her and said, Oh my God, Olivia, you're in one of my all-time favourite films. She, of course, thought it was Romeo and Juliet. Now she's still obsessed with that to this very day. <laughs> but she was surprised to find out it was actually Black Christmas. And Steve Martin, at that time, had seen it around 27 times. Yeah, so let's start with Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> I discovered Olivia Hussey's um, Instagram recently. And she does a lot of throwback Fridays. Um, and the Thursdays or whatever it is, whatever day Thursdays, of the week yeah. it is. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I wonder if she's doing one for Black Christmas. But it's not really. All of it is Romeo and Juliet, <laughs> and it, which is a big film. I mean, I mean it was Franco Zeffirelli. Mm. You know, it was a big deal. And her starring in it, she won a Golden Globe for Best Newcomer Female. Um, so I understand it's a big deal. But all her posts were about Romeo and Juliet. I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck, uh, Black Christmas is drag. According to director Bob Clark, the original script for the film featured murder scenes that were more graphic. Clark, however, felt that it would be more effective if the murders were toned down and kept subtle on screen. And writer Roy Moore liked the idea as well. And thank God they went with that approach. Yeah, it does, it does work. You know, we, you know us, we, we love a, a gory kill just as much as the next person. But if there's one thing that I mean, this film does many things right. But it, it one of those one of the top five things that it does perfectly is uh, its ability to go with the whole "what you don't see scares you" thing, and it, it really does provide a masterclass in that. Mm-hmm. NBC scheduled the film for its prime time network debut uh, in nineteen seventy eight in January under the title "Stranger in the House." On January 15th, um, which was literally a week or two before it was due to be uh, uh, broadcast, two female students at Florida State University were murdered by an assailant who broke into the sorority house where they lived. Three other young women uh, in the immediate uh, vicinity uh, were attacked and assaulted. NBC received numerous police from locals to pull the movie from broadcast in light of the crimes. Uh, after stating that they would offer the local, um, what word am I looking for? Uh, affiliates, an alternative movie to broadcast. They decided to just pull the plug on the movie altogether and instead the film Doc Savage, Man of Bronze was shown. NBC instead ran Stranger in a House as a late movie on May 14th of the same year. The perpetrator of the crimes at Florida State University was later identified as serial killer Ted Bundy. Um... I mean, pulling the film from TV, the murder's already been committed. You know, it's what does that It's a little insensitive, though, if the film is very similar to a real-life crime. Yeah. Uh, I don't think they're saying that it influenced the crime. No. But it's, it's maybe a little insensitive. But um, it's not like they decided to show it just because that happened. It's like, oh, no. okay, quick, let's get this on. No, but it, it just, you know, it's... It's a classy thing to do is to say, okay, we'll push yeah. this back. Uh, we don't want to... We don't want it to even look like we've deliberately yeah. done this to anyone. Um, I thought the interesting thing is that here's us two. Like, oh, we were so sorry that we're having to, uh, you know, do this podcast <laughs> so late. When they're showing it in the end of May. January <laughs> in May. So, okay. <laughs> 
Uh, reportedly, writer Roy Moore took inspiration for the story from an actual series of murders that took place in Montreal, uh, Quebec, around the Christmas season, along with the urban legend, The Babysitter and The Man Upstairs, which, of course, also influenced uh, When a Stranger Calls. Yes. Yeah, when, when a Stranger Calls has a lot... I mean, there's obviously that urban legend, but I think When a Stranger Calls also took a lot from this film. For the first 15 minutes. For the first 15 minutes. <laughs> but also, I think the police investigation side of things, When a Stranger Calls just didn't do it as good. Um, it was. It isn't a prominent thing in this, but it is still a big entity within the film itself. I, I got, from When a Stranger Calls, a big, long boring period in the middle where he's like rehabilitating himself yeah but it's also the police trying to figure out good old charles durning yeah yeah i mean i mean this is far superior yeah far superior Uh, upon initial release in the u.s the film's title was changed to silent night evil night oh no because the american distributor feared the title black christmas sounded too much like a black exploitation oh Unfortunately, that makes sense. <laughs> However, the film didn't do well under the new title and was changed to Black Christmas, uh, and then it had some success. Yeah, because everyone was expecting Pam Greer in the <laughs> title role. I mean, imagine if she was. I'd watch that. I, w- I would absolutely watch that. It's not too late to remake it with her in it. <laughs> Legend has it that this was Elvis Presley's favourite horror film, and he had a tradition of watching it every Christmas just like us. He was dead three years after it was made. Further rumours say that his family kept the tradition alive and watched it in his memory. If true, Alvis would have celebrated this tradition a maximum of only three times before his untimely death in 1977. It's about the same as this, though, to be fair. We're on four now? Five. Five now, yeah. Um, During an interview with director Bob Clark, Clark said Olivia Hussey's decision to take the role of Jess was based upon upon her getting some advice from a psychic. Oh, yeah, her Instagram is full of that as well. <laughs> According to Clark, Hussey said her psyche believed that the film would be successful and a wise career choice for her. I mean, I think it was a wise career choice for I her. I think it was. You know, it's better career choice than Ice Cream Man. Whatever psychic gave her that idea needs to get the fucking sack. She, a, a beautiful actress, <laughs> and can act as well. Mm. Um, it's not often I say that. Um... I don't think she was successful as maybe she could have no. been. Um, she was in Romeo and Juliet. She was in Romeo and Juliet. That was the first. <laughs> I mean, that was. I think that was like a third film. Um, I do remember her from Death on the Nile, though, which I love. Death on the Nile. I know it's a random uh, film to stand, but I, I do stand Death on the Nile. But other than that, I can't think of anything. You said that she was awful. She in wasn't great in it. It's part yeah. two. Again, the psychic told her to take that role. <laughs> um, Margot Kidder admitted in an interview that she never thought the film would become a hit and was surprised to learn that it gained such a cult fo- large cult following over the years. I mean, Margot Kidder, now she's gone to more successful things. Yes. She's Lois Lane. Yes. You know? What else was Margot Kidder in? Indiana Jones? No. No? Who am I thinking of? Karen Allen. Karen Allen. They look. They look very similar. They do actually. Um, yeah, Margot Kidder. She she had her troubles, didn't she? Bless her. Yeah. Uh, later on in life, but she, I think we've watched her in quite a few films. Yeah. But obviously, um, Superman is what she's most well known for. 
Composer Carl Zetra said in an interview that he created the, uh, the bizarre music score for the film by tying forks, combs and knives to the strings of his piano so the sound would uh, warp as he struck the keys. Um, well, that's a genius idea because yeah. the soundtrack is top notch. And he would distort the sound further by recording audio tape whilst putting pressure on the reels of the machine to make it turn slower. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's a sound that you, you wouldn't know how it's created. No. Uh, according to Bob Clark, Margot Kidder insisted on drinking real alcohol for the various scenes where Barb was uh, to be drinking and being, and she was actually intoxicated, which explains why she's so good at playing drunk. There we go, method actress. <laughs> the role of Peter was originally offered to Malcolm McDowell, but he turned it down, a decision that McDowell regrets to this day when he saw the massive success of this film and its classic horror status. I mean, it took another Kubrick actor for the role anyway. It did, yeah. Um... Yeah, it's not like Mark McDowell to turn anything. I know. Down, is it? I know. I mean, yeah, it's obviously since then where he's like, Do you know what? No, I've got to take every role I get. Hey, you know, you got to make your money somehow, don't you? Bob Clark said the phone call scenes were filmed before uh, they recorded the dialogue, so he wanted the girls' reaction to be kind of low key and numb, uh, and, and he didn't want them to overwhelm the shock dialogue they used for the scenes. So he edited the phone stalker recordings afterwards, which were quite shocking. Really shocking. Mm. I would go out on a limb and say that without those phone calls, the film wouldn't be as effective. It's definitely a big part of it. It's, I think, a huge part of it. Mm -hmm. I think a a huge part of it. Because those phone calls are fucking creepy. Something that both remakes didn't understand. Exactly. Uh, a strict rule that Clark had set for himself when it came to writing the female characters was never to objectify them sexually or give them any nude scenes. He wanted the college girls to come off as real people and not disposable horror characters waiting to die. And it shows. Yeah. It shows. This is absolutely a feminist film. 100%. Um, and I think, you know, a big part of that is the fact that it's never it's never sexual. And I think that's also what makes the phone calls more shocking as well. In fact, that the most sexual thing you get in this film, the most sexually explicit thing you get in this film, are these disgusting phone calls. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, the role of Mrs. Mack was originally offered to Betty Davis, who turned it down. Oh, I would have watched that. <laughs> would have watched that. Like, you don't watch this every year anyway. I know, without Betty but Davis. I would have been front row for that. <laughs> In 1974. Exactly, I would have went back in time. Gene Siskel was, as we know, notoriously prudish and dismissive of horror films and treated this film no differently, giving it a very low 1.5 stars out of 4. Uh, He was also critical of the actresses in the film for taking on what he considered to be junk roles. (gasps) That's not true. Siskel and Ebert needed to really make their minds up on their opinions of uh, women in horror films. Mm. Yeah, they were always contradicting themselves. And also, who rates films out of four? That's fucking weird. <laughs> there were several attempts over the years to produce a sequel for the film. After the failure of the remake, Bob Clark began work on the sequel, but tragically passed away in a car crash due to a drunk driver in 2007. In all these attempts, Olivia Hussey and John Saxon were to reprise their roles of Jess and Lieutenant Fuller. Uh, Jess would have become the new house mother of the sorority in Clark's treatment for the film back in 2007. So, spoiler alert, 
uh, is Bob Clark suggesting that she survived? Yeah, that she survived. So does that make it canon that she survived? It was never made, sadly. But if he, the director yeah, and said is that she's right be... the original film. Well, it, n- no, I think he was just the director. But the, if the director of the original film says that she survived and mm-hmm. therefore, you know, would have survived yeah. and to become the new. Uh, Mrs. Mack, then Miss mm-hmm. uh, Buchanan, then. Oh. Yeah. Shame it never got made. Yeah. Uh, Billy is mainly embodied by camera operator Albert J. Dunk, who not only did the POV shots from the killer's perspective, but also played him during a few of the murders. It was his hands that were seen by the audience. Nick Mancuso, the main voice actor as Billy, was not on set. Both director Bob Clark and Keir Dulia uh, confirmed that Dulia at no point contributed to Billy. Yeah. Yeah. After seeing the ending of the film, studio executives asked uh, Bob Clark to change the ending. The proposed idea was to have the cops leave Jess alone with Chris, Claire's boyfriend. She wakes up and he says, Agnes, don't tell them what we did. And then he kills her. But Clark refused and kept the original ending. Oh, keeping it open. Although the audience never finds out anything about the mysterious killer or even if his name is really Billy, Bob Clark worked out a backstory for him. He was abused as a child, locked in the attic and eventually killed his parents. The Agnes he keeps referring to is his little sister, whom he tried to kill but she escaped, giving Billy his dislike of women. Uh, These elements were obviously brought into the remake, which had Bob Clark's approval. Well, so did Baby Genius's one too, (laughs) so... Body Count 8... Which brings us on to... Well, actually, no, before we bring us on to it, give your uh, backstory for Black Christmas, your attachment to it. My attachment? Oh, oh no. no. Good Tell gracious. Your history. Um, well, my history is that it was... Uh, I kept seeing it on Terror Trap. Remember yeah. that old website? I wonder if that's still going. You finally Terror remember... A few weeks back on a podcast, you could not I remember the name of that. Terror Trap. <laughs> and it was on there, and it said, Must See Slashers. Couldn't get a hold of it, and then it was on the Horror Channel one Christmas, not, not way too long ago, sort of within the last 10 years. Um, and so I put it on, and, you know, it was Christ- it was Christmas Day, actually, and my mother was in the room, and um, the first phone call came up. And obviously anyone who's seen the film, the see you next Tuesday word is used a lot. And it's very sexually aggressive, this phone call. And I just remember my mum being so horrified <laughs> at this phone call of this film that I thought, oh my God, this is going to be the greatest horror film I've ever watched. I'm <laughs> loving this. And uh, you, it's up there. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, sadly, I saw the 2006 remake first. Mm. I know, yeah. Um... And, you know, at the time, because I had nothing to compare it to, I thought it was all right. I, you know, I never won on a big pile of 2000s horror films that, uh, you know, they're horror films. There's <laughs> not, not much more you can say about them, you know, and they're not going to break any boundaries. But then when I watched the original, again, the phone call scene was jarring. It was so jarring. It happened so early on. And, you know... When I was so used to watching the remake a few times, um, and really, it, it, there's a few horrific things happening, but you see those things in the remake. When something like this phone call happens in the original, it's really shocking. Mm. 
in comparison to everything that happens on screen in the remake. And it, it genuinely, it just made me really uncomfortable. And I, and I watched the whole film and loved it and obviously realised it was much more superior to uh, <laughs> to the remake. But then, you know, and then we watched, we obviously got together and watched, uh, we watched the original Levy Christmas now. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think part of the shock for, for me and probably for my mum as well is that we never. I I didn't assume older films were like that. No, like I knew The Exorcist was like that. Yeah, but I thought that was it, you know. And I was like, oh my god, it's saying the c word, like Jesus, <clears throat> wow. Yeah, and we go from that masterclass and subtlety with a few shocking things here and there to Black Christmas two thousand and six. Stylized as Black Xmas. Oh, don't. Even the title is lazy. Directed by Glenn Morgan, uh, who directed the Willard remake Mm -hmm. and three episodes of The X-Files. Also the writer of The Boys Next Door, 1985, Trick or Treat, 1986, Final Destination 1 to 3, four episodes of The New Twilight Zone and much more. Wow. Budget $9 million and it made $21.5 million worldwide. That's not great, is it, for 2006? No, I mean, it's still a success, moderate. Yeah, I don't... See, I never know if budget incorporates marketing mm. when they give these budget numbers. Um, I don't think much money went on the fucking marketing for this film. <laughs> well, you would pay for like, being shown at cinemas yeah. and on TV, like TV spots and such. Um, but I don't. It, uh, the, at the end of the day, if a horror film, a slasher remake in two thousand and six, had made decent money, mm. particularly in America, we would have had would have Black Xmas two. Yeah. Black double Xmas. Yeah. <laughs> in two, we'd had that in two thousand and seven. Yeah. Glenn Morgan approached Mary Elizabeth Winstead about the film at four a.m. in the airport after finishing Final Destination three with her. After being hesitant at first, after only just finishing a horror film, she agreed to the role of Heather because she's a fan of the original film. And, oh, Mary Elizabeth Wynn said, why did you take the role? Because there's <laughs> very little work involved. I, I Genuinely, she is one of my favourite modern actresses, and she gets some of the shittest roles. Like, she, I, I think she's still waiting for a big, a big breakout role all these years later. Is, um... People know her, but... Who did she play in the Harley Quinn film? A Huntress. Yeah, she was the best thing about that. Is she not getting her own series or film? Or... Not that I know of. No. Um, but, you know, The Thing is, is probably her best film. Uh, Death Proof. You know, she's one of the best things about that. But it's all these really... These films where you watch them and you're like, okay, that could have been better. And, yeah. Black Christmas. That's so... Andrea Martin, the second best thing about... No, actually, is, Andrea Martin's the best thing about this film. Mary Elizabeth Winslet's the second best thing. Um, who played Phyllis in uh, the original Black Christmas said in an interview that she hadn't thought about Black Christmas for 32 years, so it came out of the blue when she was offered the role as the house mother in this film. Yeah, I think she was the the, the one that was working quite regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously remember her from Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Yeah. Uh, the film was marketed as a Final Destination movie in Japan. How oh. fucking weird. Oh, wow. Oh. What, the ice... Uh, ice cool thing <laughs> <on our heads? laughs> That one thing. That one thing. 
Glenn Morgan wanted either Margot Kidder or Andrea Martin to play the house mother. Um, of course, Martin took the role. Margot Kidder did not. Amanda Seyfried auditioned for the lead role of Kelly, but lost to Katie Cassidy. The filmmakers stated that they turned her down because they didn't want two Mean Girls actresses uh, in the film, the other being Lacey Shaber, of course. Oh, of course. In her blinking, you'll miss it. <laughs> Every fucking character's blinking. Kind of typecast, <laughs> but... We'd should be lucky to get any actual character <laughs> development to be typecasting. Um, now, of course, this was produced by the Weinstein brothers, and it may not surprise anyone to learn that they are pretty much the reason why this was a disaster. Glenn Morgan um, and the Weinstein brothers Harvey and Bub reportedly often clashed during filming due to their insistence that the film be more gory, which Glenn Morgan did not approve of. One example is uh, the cannibalistic tendencies of the killers, uh, such as Billy making flesh cookies out of his mother's skin, which was not in the original script and only shoehorned into the film to make it gorier. But that's where this film falls short. You know, shit, you don't need shit like that. It's Black Christmas. It's true, but I'm not going to lie. I don't think the rest of it holds up. And... Therefore, the gore is the only thing that actually becomes memorable. Mm. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous and kind of stupid, but it is kind of what you remember from the film. Yeah. I mean, can you recite any dialogue? Well, no, but I mean, there may have been more of a focus on that if... Maybe. Glenn Morgan was given the freedom to actually yeah. make it sort of like the original. Mm. I, I mean... One big thing here is the fact that Black Christmas didn't need to be remade. And again, it's so ahead of its time to the point it even feels modern today. Other than the characters' haircuts and outfits, you know, other than that, it feels modern now. Yeah, yeah. Glenn Morgan... Also, it didn't need a remake because, much like When a Stranger Calls, the... Film relies on the the twist yeah. that the calls are coming from inside the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Both remakes feature mobile phones. Yeah. So it kind of takes away from that mm-hmm. element. We don't even attempt to do it here. No, no. Um, Glenn Morgan based the character of Billy on the life of Ed Kemper, a real life serial killer who, as a child, had been locked in the basement of his home by his mother, who he later murdered in revenge. It's always the mums, isn't it? Yes. The film caused an uproar of controversy from Christian groups because of the studio's decision to release the film on Christmas Day. Several groups uh, called the film offensive, ill-founded and insensitive. LA Weekly uh, columnist Nikki Finks also questioned the filmmaker's decision, uh, filmmaker's decision to release the film on Christmas. Dimension Films defended the timing, saying this is a long tradition of uh, releasing horror films during the holiday season as counter-programming to the more regular Yuletide fare. Uh, film historian Michael Gurno of The Horror Review countered uh, Liberty Council's complaint, writing such crimes occur throughout the year, including Christmas, uh, as recently as a year prior in McLean and Great Falls, Virginia, to be exact. Yeah, I don't see why horror films shouldn't be released at Christmas. No. It's, it's fucking bullshit. I mean, what difference does that make to anybody? If you don't like it, don't go and see it. They probably didn't go see it. Uh, they probably thought they were having another Silent Night, Deadly Night situation <laughs> where Santa was the murderer. Yeah. This is just a series of murders that's 
happened to occur at Christmas. Yes. Yeah. Like really, it's got nothing to do. This is this is, I suppose this is the whole Die Hard thing. Yeah. Where is it a Christmas film? Is it not a Christmas film? Yes, it's got Christmas in the title, but if you look at the film purely, in terms of its relation to Christmas, everything that happens just happens to occur at Christmas mm-hmm. time. Billy could have went wild at any time of the year. Really. Yeah. Um, where the same being for Die Hard. The events that occur in Die Hard could actually have happened at any time of the year. So it's not a film about Christmas. You say that. I mean, Billy breaks out with a note saying, I'll be home for Christmas. He breaks out very specifically because it's Christmas. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're talking about the remake, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, we're talking about the remake. Yeah, okay. Now, that is a Christmas film. Okay. Um, I was talking about the original. I think with the original, you know, it uses Christmas decorations to kill people. That, that unicorn isn't... It's, it's a Christmas decoration. No, it's not. She collected crystal... <laughs> ugly crystal stuff, didn't she? I don't know. Oh, I was talking about the original. Sorry, I forgot we were talking about this shit. I bet the original is absolutely a Christmas film, by the way. Watch every yeah, Christmas. Well, of course it's a Christmas film, <laughs> but so is Die Hard. Yeah. But the same reasoning... Yeah, the same argument. ...for Die Hard yeah. can be used for Black Christmas. Uh-huh. Uh, reportedly, at the request of Dimension Films, certain scenes in the trailer and TV spots never appear in the film and were shot solely for advertising purposes. Yeah. This footage includes a young girl, played by Gillian Murray, finding another girl, neither of whom are in the film, trapped underneath a frozen pond. The same girl falling off the roof tangled in Christmas lights, an alternative death where Dana gets tangled in Christmas lights and sucked into a fresher. <laughs> a short scene of Melissa screaming at someone. In a TV spot, Melissa is seen cocking a shotgun at a peephole in the front door, saying Merry fucking Christmas. <laughs> and my personal favourite, Melissa walking down a hall where Billy can be seen crawling across the ceiling with a hatchet. <laughs> Bits and pieces of Melissa's UK version of her death are also seen in the trailer. There's also a line that didn't make it into the film, where during the first scary phone call from Billy and Agnes, Billy says, all is calm, all is bright, who is in my house tonight? Absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> it's well known that certain these certain shots in the trailer were filmed just for advertising purposes, and no traces of the footage actually can be found anywhere. Not even in deleted scenes. Oh. Um, these scenes were filmed behind the director's back, uh, and Mary Elizabeth Winstead had to make him aware of it over the phone. Uh, they were both quite angry about it. Of course, this is all the wine scenes I do. Yes. Why would it be on the ceiling like fucking It's Spider-Man? so stupid. It, and it looked really stupid. It looks so well. stupid. In the original screenplay, the term was much more serious, and Lee lived in the end along with Melissa, who only died because the actress. Would not do the film unless her character died. Wise oh. choice. Also, Billy had died in the mental asylum where, uh, whilst Agnes was the main antagonist. The original ending uh, ended as Kelly and Lee killing Agnes and being rushed to hospital. Melissa was also intended to be uh, Asian before the actress was cast. And Lauren Hannon was instead cast with an Asian actress. Yeah, um... Melissa, that's Michelle Trachtenberg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, excuse my pronunciation. Um, I suppose she was post Buffy at that time, wasn't yeah. she? Yeah. 
Yeah, she I don't know what she's done after that. I think she was in Gossip Girl. I always found her quite annoying in Puffy, but I think that was... The, I, I feel that was the point. Yeah. Um, and she... What else was she in? Eurotrip. Yes, she was in Eurotrip. Yeah. Glenn Morgan has reportedly disowned the film. In response to a, a question of whether he was happy or not with the results, <coughs> he said, no way, and it's schizophrenic because Bob Weinstein came in and urinated on it. Really, there was a time where torture porn was the hot thing. Um, you know, I became friends with Bob Clark. You can throw that movie into you can throw that movie into one of your first questions. I love that movie and also a Christmas story. The, he's referring to the original, uh-huh. and I learned a lot from Bob and had his blessing that we were trying to make a version that he didn't where he didn't he didn't get to deal with the background of the killers and stuff like that. Uh, when Bob Weinstein came in and saw that, he was like, we need to drag Michelle Trachtenberg uh, down the hall by her eyes. And I was like, oh, Lord. And I talked to my agent and lawyer and Kristen Cloak uh, about it, who plays Lee. Uh, and it was humiliating. It was horrible. I stayed to try and protect the cast and crew, friends of mine, and ended up taking it on the chin. Yeah, it was during torture. It was, yeah. Time. And that shows in the trailer with the fake footage because the phone call, the voice sounds like Jigsaw. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Melissa's original death, which is the one we got in the UK, is, of course, where she has her eye ripped out and is dragged down the hall by her eye socket, uh, which Dimension Films forced Glenn Morgan to film. Morgan decided to reshoot her death as the previous one wasn't creative enough to escape in the bag and being chased into her room and having part of her head sliced off by an ice skate as she attempts to escape from a window. This was filmed behind the studio's back and became the version that you see in the US version. Oh. Yeah. That sounds a little more interesting. Actually. I know, yeah. Come <laughs> on, H2O. There are three alternative endings shot for the film. The first ending had Lee and Kelly engage in a heartwarming talk with Lee, opening Claire's present. Uh, the ending concluded with Kelly getting a call from Kyle's phone, implying that either Agnes or Billy survived. The second ending uh, is the one we have here in the UK, where Agnes comes back, Billy dies, Agnes is killed, Lee's killed, and Kelly's picked up by her parents. Uh... And the third ending had the morticians discovering Billy's body is missing whilst a shot inside a smoke detector on the wall reveals that Billy escaped. Do you think that multiple endings being filmed is a red flag? Yeah, absolutely. I think if if you don't have it all set out before you start mm. filming, yeah, then to me, and it absolutely seems to be the case, for this film, to me, that screams studio interference. Yeah, oh, definitely. And it, it always seems to be the case with uh, Dimension Films. So many, so many of those films have alternative endings. Yeah. It, it really... It, it, um, I can't think of too many films that have alternative endings um, that haven't involved studios. Yeah. I mean... No, on Elm Street, there was an alternative mm-hmm. ending because Bob Shea wanted a different ending to it and this, that and the other. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's a red flag. Yeah. Body count 18. Ten more than the uh, original. This whole body... People are using the term body count now to refer to how many people they've slept with. <laughs> 
So you know that Adele video? Yeah. Where they went, what's your body count, Adele? And she didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> so now I'm laughing because the body count now can mean something else. Um, I think it derives from horror films. Like body oh, yeah. Count. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Speaking of uh, the, the internet and modern day, um, Black Christmas 2006 seems to have the house of wax about it, uh, where all, all of the uh, Twitter gays seem to be loving it these days. And with that cast? I, I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people I follow on Lairbox seem to really enjoy it. Um, someone gave it five stars, a little much. Oh. Um, but yeah, it's it's that weird two thousands horror thing where it's had that sort of resurgence. Like, um, I, I think, oh, if it's not the case, then Cursed will be next. I think Cursed has already had it, but that'll be next if it hasn't. Uh, Cursed, House of Wax, Thirteen Ghosts, Scream Free, you know. Yeah. It's uh yeah yeah it's 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 a weird resurgence. It's a nostalgia, isn't it? It is. There's it a is. nostalgia attached to it. Um, I mean, I watched all these when they were first released. You know, I've got a bit of nostalgia attached to it. But analysing it for the podcast, <laughs> you really realise just how shitty the two thousand six Black Christmas is. Yeah, but it's it's the difference. The difference is in terms of letterboxed. I don't sound like a gigantic nerd. But it's the difference between a two-star film and a two-star film with a love heart. Yeah. Um, You can embrace the flaws Mm -hmm. of a lot of films and still find something there to enjoy, even if it's just latching on Mm -hmm. to the female cast members. Yeah. You know? Um, But overall, you have to admit... A bit shit. Yes. <laughs> but speaking of resurgences, um, one that's perhaps a little more well deserved, Black Christmas twenty nineteen. Now I could hear you all gasping through <gasps> your phones. Dun, dun, uh, dun, oh dun, my god! Follow you on Chris there, and dun, Gary, the Horrorcore Trash Over Podcast twenty nineteen, slagging off this film, Blumhouse episode where they fucking rip the director a new one. Oh my god! Oh how can they like this film? Like, it's always their reference point. It's the worst remake. Yes. We have had a... <laughs> a rewatch and a rethink. Now, we're not saying it's an amazing film. You know, we're not saying it's great. It's breaking boundaries. It's one of the best remakes ever. Nothing like that. It's still far from perfect. But it's really not that bad. It's not good... But it's not diabolical. No, and it's it's at the point where I think watching it with certain expectations makes a big difference. Absolutely. We watched it back in twenty nineteen, and I I was in the cinema just fucking begging the film to end as soon as possible. It was I I, I despised it. I gave it half a star. Uh, I thought the message was just one big mess. Like it wasn't being executed properly. Uh, but, you know, we went in, uh, we went expecting uh, a remake of Black Christmas. And we'd also seen the trailer so many fucking times of what it is. And the, the trailer genuinely shows you the whole film. It, it was a ruin for us. Yeah. Completely ruined it for us. It does show you the whole film. Um, and and we, we really fucking hated it. Uh, you know, we said it was the worst horror film that year. Uh, not true. Not even close to the truth. Um... 
yeah, no, we, we, we did not like it at all, but today rewatching it, it's a bit of a different opinion, which we'll obviously go more into detail yeah. in a little while, but just to let you know, we don't hate it. Um, directed by... Well, yeah, we don't hate it. No. Okay. Um, we all deserve second chances. Yes. Yes, this is proof of that. Um, directed by Sophia Takel. Uh, director of Green, Always Shine, an episode of Into the Dark, and two episodes of One of Us is Lion. Budget of $5 million, and it made $18.5 million worldwide. That's not great not, for Blumhouse. No, no, not for Blumhouse. And I don't think it's great because it was really marketed quite broadly, wasn't it? Yeah. Um... The, the the problem is with a film like this that is so intent on its feminist, uh, you know, its, its feminist message, and the whole woke side of it and everything. Um, something that I I found you know little traces of worked better this time. Some things don't because of how forced it is. But when you are providing a message like that, sadly, this world has a lot of assholes and. I fully believe a lot of people probably rate this badly without even watching the film. Like they did with Ghostbusters. Absolutely not. I'm so sorry, Gary. I completely disagree with you on that one. This is not... I don't... don't, Are you going to come out and give it five stars? No, no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying with internet comment sections and the way a lot of people are online, you've seen the reaction to Eternals. But... But we we're not like that. I'm not we saying we still it's... gave it half a star two years ago. Yeah, yeah, I know that. But I'm saying as well as people because like, you actually went out and watched it and seen that it wasn't a good film. I'm saying there's probably a lot of other people out there that haven't bothered even watching it, and use the internet as a place to vent about it. Potentially. I'm not saying that did happen. No, I'm I not. Feel like, I feel like Ghostbusters got that treatment. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm not sure if this did. No, I don't um, know. And I, I do think that that is a very, also very low for a PG-13 as well. That yeah. That box office is very low. Yeah, definitely. And, and that was not me saying that did happen, by the way. No, I mean, I mean, it's possible that it happened. I just, I feel like people had a connection to the original Ghostbusters films. I don't feel like people had that kind of connection to the original Black Christmas. People probably didn't even know this as a remake. Where they would be so offended. Yeah. By... Because the original Black Christmas, as you said earlier, was a feminist film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. But people had that relationship to Ghostbusters. And their Ghostbusters were set in stone. It was Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, the others that I can't remember the name of. Um, and that was it. They are my Ghostbusters. Yeah. They're the ones I grew up with. I just didn't think anyone had that affinity no, no, no. to the first film. No, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is the the message and the agenda of this film mm. is what could have drew a lot of people being pissed off. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not saying... I only gave it two and a half this time around, you know? I'm not saying this is a perfect film by any means, but it's a well-known fact that anything out there that is considered to be woke even slightly... Attracts a lot of hate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you, I think you make a good point, but I just, I felt like the Ghostbusters comparison wasn't quite. No, right. no, no, yeah. I think people maybe watched the film and hated it for that reason mm-hmm. as well. 
Yeah, not not yeah. us. But <laughs> I feel like some people watched the film and hated it. There's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of reasons to hate this film. That isn't the, you one know, of them and shouldn't be one of them. That was never the reason we hated it. We hated it because we just thought it was shit and did not live up to the original. Um, but I think one of the reasons is because of the message it's trying to say. Because, I mean, the message it's trying to say and some of the characters they portray in this film are very much real people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, your protagonists are very strongly feminist. Yeah. Yeah. Universal Studios and Blumhouse received a backlash after the first trailer was released uh, uh, due to the amount of spoilers within. But, I mean, it, of course, we've already mentioned this, but I, I, and to emphasise on this, it genuinely shows you everything. Yeah. Like, the way it starts, the middle section, and the end, with the twist, yeah. all within two minutes. That's bizarre. Why would you do that? You think they're trying to sell it? I feel I feel like trailers are getting better. I mean, look at Spider Man No Way Home. We literally that trailer shows you a couple of seconds from the third act, and everything else is all within the first half an hour. Yeah, or digitally altered. Oh, digitally yeah. altered. You know, yeah. and there's some digitally altered stuff in this trailer, which is bizarre because it really doesn't make that much difference. Mm. Um. But yeah, no, it, it was fucking terrible. And anyone, you know, go on YouTube and have a look at the trailer. But we, when we first saw the trailer, we, we said, um, well, I hope that's not everything. Yeah. Yeah, we, we were expecting like a little twist here and yeah. there to pop up, but no. That's what I was saying. I thought they were set, the trailer was setting us up to, you know, have an even bigger reveal. Mm. Yeah. But no, the, like Donald Trump was behind it all along. The first Black Christmas film to be rated PG-13, both the original and 2006 were rated R. About 30 minutes of footage was supposedly cut to achieve the PG-13 rating after test screenings, as Takao wanted the film to be more marketable to young girls interested in the horror genre. And yes, that, that is exactly who needs to watch this. Yeah. That, you know, that is... It, it, this is film is made for a new generation. It's not... Uh, I think, you know, again, it, it's why it was a bit shocking when we first watched it. It's, this is definitely made for a younger, new generation. But it's then very it also modern... deals with themes that... I don't know. Obviously, I'm, I'm not a young girl. But themes that I'm assuming young girls don't fully understand. No. No, but feelings that they should be aware of. They should you know? be aware of, but it doesn't answer any of their questions no, that they're going to no. have. And that's one of the big problems yeah. here um, with how it's delivered. Aside from taking place during Christmas, featuring a sorority, a supporting character named Jesse, and the main characters being college students, uh, the film shows no connection to any previous, any of the previous, either of the previous Black Christmas films in terms of plot. And again, another thing that really pissed me off, because why call it Black Christmas? And I still yeah. stand by this. Yeah. It is the stupidest idea to call it Black Christmas. Yeah. You could have called it anything. Yeah. It it bears no relation to what came previously. No. Um, director said in an interview that she wanted to explore the same premise as the original, but with a Me Too style twist and uh, a celebration of the bonds of sisterhood. And that's great, but the original was already a feminist film. So it kind of had that... Yeah, but it was a feminist film in 1974. Yeah. Um, things change. Mm -hmm. So obviously the, the idea of 
a feminist, particularly post Me Too, is very intriguing. Yeah. Uh, we'll get into it. The, the film had a short and rushed production schedule being completed in only about five months. This all includes pre-production, production and post-production. In fact, some scenes in the film were shot in only one take and ad-libbed without a completed script. And you can tell at times. Yeah. I know Blumhouse has made its name on low-budget films and making them a success. Mm-hmm. But sometimes less is just less. Yeah. Sometimes you need to put a little more into something to get out a little more. Uh-huh. Imogen Poots said in an interview that she felt the scene where they sang up in the frat house was an important message for abused women, uh, even though the actresses had to wear incredibly tight red dresses uh, in front of a bunch of guys. But I kind of feel like that's the idea. Yeah. Like, showing that you know, we can wear whatever the fuck we want, it doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And it matches the message of the song. So I don't know if, I, you know... I think whoever wrote that little... Um... IMDb yeah may have actually changed it around a little bit yeah I think he's uh, a little I'm assuming it's a he excuse Uh, me yeah shouldn't assume genders Um, but I think whoever wrote that is a little um, um, one of the people I was referring to yeah (laughs) (laughs) I was I was thinking how do I put this when we I, I seem to recall when we did the Blumhouse episode I had some trivia where Sophia Takal was just going around calling everything misogynistic I don't know why I seem to... I didn't listen to the episode before we recorded this, but I seem to remember her calling Mean Girls misogynistic. I seem to remember her calling uh, the original film, original Black Christmas, um, but then, like, really praised I Spit on Your Grave. I'm sure I'm not misremembering it. So I think people may have attacked the IMDb trivia pages a bit. So just a reminder, we always get our trivia from IMDb. It's not always accurate, but... I tried to I tried to nitpick it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's a bit like Wikipedia, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's mainly, anyone can edit it. Anyone can edit it, but whoever has edited it probably does know what they're talking about. Yeah. You know, I, d- I don't see why anyone would deliberately go out of their way to change certain things. Mm. So you can trust it, but you could never trust it 100%. No. Uh, the director worked extensively to make her vision of Black Christmas as feminist as she could, stating in an interview, I wanted to make a movie where instead of feeling objectified or watched from a distance, the audience felt seen. Uh, implying that in like the 1974 and 2006 versions, which are aimed at a wider audience, this was obviously going for, as mentioned earlier, um, a more specific audience. Um... And that shows. That does show. Because this feels less like a horror film. It, it just doesn't feel massively like a horror film, is what I'm no, trying to say. yeah. It, it's successful in some parts. But as a whole, as a film, mm. it really struggles. Yeah. A body count, 25 this time around. I think that includes all of the guys in the fire at the end. Mm-hmm. So I hope so anyway, because there's definitely not 25, isn't it? Yeah, no, it will include And that. finally, the black goo that the fraternity brothers bleed is meant to represent literal toxic masculinity uh, and how it uh, affects men and changes them into from humans into monsters. Also used because they weren't allowed to show red-coloured blood in a PG-13 film. Oh, uh, I see. Lovely. 
<laughs> so, getting into uh, the synopsis. Sis. Starting with synopsis. 1974. Yes. Uh, Black Christmas 1974. We start with an unseen man who climbs for the exterior of a sorority house where a Christmas party is being held and enters the attic. The house phone rings and Jess answers to discover it is an obscene phone call from a person who was called before. Jess calls the other sorority girls and they listen to the caller uh, as he rants in strange voices. Barb insults the caller, who in turn promises to kill her. Um, but Barb is never any of it. She's just no. like, shit. Uh, she had a few bevies. Um, she was just playing along. She, this this she, is the scene. Yeah, she suggests that uh, it goes over to Lando Co. Because uh, they could use a little bit of this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you have the dialogue down from the phone call? I don't, I wasn't, I really didn't want to like, say it on the podcast. I mean, I'm I'm sure people have definitely heard worse from us on, on the well, podcast. They've probably heard worse on a phone call from you, so I thought you <laughs> might want to do it. Yes, we have big cunt. Yeah, big cunt, you big cunt. Let me lick it, lick it, lick it. Let me lick your pretty piggy cunt. Suck my juicy cock. Piggy cunt, you want my fat cock. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Along with loads of other little random noises. Yeah. <laughs> Gary, Gary didn't quite do it justice. It's much creepier than that. Yes, I mean and, people and, come to listen to our information, not our creepy. Well, you sounded like you were reading out lyrics <laughs> to a Peter Andre song. Um, but yeah, um, really intense. Like from the get go, you're like, oh my god. Yes. Were they allowed to say cunt in a uh, film back in the seventies? Like, oh my. And it's it's that quick change as well, where he's saying all this like sexually aggressive stuff. And then his voice just immediately changes to, I'm going to kill you. And it's like, oh my God, this is fucking horrifying. Yeah. And I also found that Barb's reaction mm. um, it was quite telling of the sort of treatment of women. Yeah. Um, so Barb was like, you know, I deal with worse than the city all yeah, the yeah. time, you know. Um, and it's probably true. Mm. Um, she's kind of like, oh, whatever. Which is why she plays along with it. Mm. Whereas the younger student and professional virgin, Claire Harrison, she doesn't like... She doesn't like Barb, clearly. And Barb doesn't like her. Because mm. um, they're two very different characters. Yeah. But she is upset that Barb plays along. Because yeah. she thinks that she's gunning, gunning him <clears throat> on. And something's going to come of it. Um, she's 100% correct. <laughs> but she's got no time to gloat um, because she returns to her bedroom and an intruder, the intruder that's uh, broken into the sorority house, suffocates her with a plastic dress bag and moves her body to the attic. Yes. She's um, good old Claude. We see Claude for the first time. Yeah, don't Claude we? the cat. Claude the cat. Big, big important part of the film. <laughs> um, some have suggested that Claude is behind the whole thing. Uh, that someone was me when we when we watched it. Yeah. Um, I I think this first kill is easily one of the scariest kills in slasher history. Yeah. It's just so like the camera, which obviously we'll go into more a little later on, but you know the way the camera's set up and everything, and, and this character, this is a case of not knowing a character actually making the scene more effective because it feels like you're gonna get to know her. This is you know. You and just introduced these characters so She's early on. She's a professional on. virgin. She's a professional virgin. Obviously, this film. 
invented a few slasher film tropes. Yeah, just not that one. Uh, just <laughs> not that one. But obviously, us going back. Obviously, this isn't Bob Clark's intent. Uh, but us going back and watching it, mm. we're like, oh, oh, it's Claire. Yeah. We're like, oh shit, no, it's not. Bye, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love a horror film, and a lot of the real great horror films do it, is where the threat is established from the get-go. Yeah, yeah you know you're You in get form. right into it. This is it, you know. Um, all... I actually I cannot think of a, a horror a great horror film that doesn't do it. Yeah, they're just know, like just like Halloween. Go straight into it. Yeah, and then you establish things, but all all all, the while in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh shit, you know, you could be next, you could be next, you could be next, you could be, mm. you know, if you haven't established a threat, then you don't really know what your scared of yeah what what is meant to scare you in the film um so i i loved how this just got to do it straight away yeah and it's like cunt 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 murder now yeah. we're gonna set up the scene yeah and obviously we all know this is this film had the biggest influence on halloween um it's something that halloween does well you know yeah. the first thing we see in this film and in halloween when i mean obviously not including the opening credits is the pov shot from the killer yeah so when you see that POV, you know you're watching through the eyes of the killer. And like you said on a Halloween episode, it's very voyeuristic. And it feels horrible knowing that we are there. We are behind the eyes of this killer. And, you know, we're not in control of where he's going or what he's about to do. But we care about these characters that he's going towards, you know? Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street, Street yeah. Established threat. We see Freddy Krueger within the first, you know, five, ten minutes mm. of the film... Then we get to meet Tina. Yeah. We establish a relationship with Tina. And then she's killed off. Yeah. And then, oh shit. Actually, it's this girl. With, you mm-hmm. know. I was never sure. When I first watched this film, I was never sure who the final girl was going to exactly. be. Exactly. I thought maybe Barb. Uh, after, obviously after Claire was killed, I thought maybe Barb. Um, but then, of course, it ended up being... Uh... Well, I assumed it would have been the one whose name I cannot remember. Phil. Phil. Yeah. I I assumed it would have been Phil because Phil felt like the level-headed one. Yeah. Obviously as the film goes on, um Jess becomes our protagonist. Yeah. 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 It's her story, she's the protagonist. Like, oh, okay. You know, um she's going to be our final girl. Mm-hmm. But from the get-go, you you'd think it would be Phil because she just yeah. seemed the most level-headed, uh the most normal mm-hmm. of the girls. Um, but yeah, but we're looking at this in terms of every, after seeing everything, it's influenced. Everything that's influenced. I mean, this starts it all, so it's not really going to play within those, but it's interesting, you know, to see it from a modern perspective. You know, we can't necessarily forget all those films that we've watched whilst watching this. Um, so after Claire's death, the following morning, Mr. Harrison arrives to pick up his daughter but she fails to show. Jess explains to her boyfriend, Peter, that she is pregnant and planning to get an abortion, angering Peter, and they agree to discuss it later. In town, Mr. Harrison attempts to report Claire as missing. At the police station, they learn that a young local girl has also vanished. Um, so, here's Jess's story. 
1974. 1974. Lead protagonist, getting an abortion, that's fine. It's her body, she does what she wants. Fantastic. Exactly. It makes no judgments towards no. her. If anything, we're meant to be completely on her side. Yes. It is her body, her choice. Yeah. You know, why isn't she allowed a future? Yeah. You know, old um, Peter... Peter? Yeah, Peter. Mm-hmm. Old Peter, he'll still be free to do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. Um, what about her dreams? And it's a really great yeah. scene. And Olivia Hussey, uh, Hussey, Olivia Hussey mm. um, actually plays it really she well. Does, yeah. And um, in explaining, you know, all those dreams and ambitions that she mm. had, they're still there. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, all these creepy phone calls are going on and whatnot... You know, she's not letting that get in the way of it. She's not letting that cloud her judgment on what she wants to do. She's still very much in control of her situation. And again, I think, sorry to interrupt, but I I think it was a sign of the times. The way that Barb reacted, I think potentially Jess mm. had had a history of that as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we watch loads of creepy YouTube videos Mm. like... Um, the weirdest phone calls, weirdest voicemails of all time. We hear stories from our friends Ex- about the way men treat us. Yeah, exactly. So, and th- we hear it in terms of the internet now. Yeah. I mean, for them, maybe this was someone's way of essentially sending a dick pic yeah. or doing something to get a rise out of these mm. women in a sexual way. Yeah. And... Ugh, I think, really, that was probably a, a regular occurrence mm. back then. I mean, you also look at later on when he proposes to her, you know, she says, no, she's like, fuck that, no. Yeah. Well, absolutely not. And that is a big statement coming from a film in 1974, just after a decade where every film, every bit of romance is always, oh, hi, yeah, nice to meet you. Ten minutes later, oh, let's get married. Yeah. This is a character who is a leanest film. No, I don't want to fucking get married. I don't want to have your baby. I am a single, independent woman. This is my position. She has no interest in him. Well, she has an interest. I think she feels quite sorry for him. Mm. Um, but she's... She has no interest in the future of him. It, it's the, the great thing. It was where I love you, but I love myself more. Yeah. And being married to him and having children puts all of her dreams aside yes you know she doesn't want to be a passenger in her own Mm. life she she's behind the wheel he could be behind his wheel as well yeah and if they're together then great Mm -hmm. but she's not gonna allow her connection to him to stop anything you know and that is for 1974 in a fucking slasher film Mm. Really wonderful to see. It is. And to hear, you know. Um, If only this part of the film was taken on. I know, yeah. And it was in Halloween. I I would suggest Halloween is also um, feminist in its depiction of Laurie Strode. Um, But if only that was carried on further down the line. Um, But yeah, really refreshing to see that. they're at the police station. This bumbling police officer. I don't know his name. That is awful. He's he's the epitome of the police officer that doesn't really care. Yeah. Um, 
the kind of police officer that really shouldn't have joined the police. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, he's given a new phone extension by Bob, isn't he? Yes. Um, no, I don't really understand how American phone numbers work. It's Canadian. Canadian, excuse me, Canadian. Is it Canadian film? Are they not yeah. pretending to be in America? No. Are you sure? I'm pretty certain. Oh, okay. Well, it's Canadian. Um, she gives fellatio as the start of the number, <laughs> doesn't she? Yes. That's so weird. I don't. I don't really get that. Um, are you trying to look if it's Canadian? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm pretty certain. I'm pretty certain okay. Cool. Um, but yeah, so um, Bob's quite drunk, isn't she? She's progressively yes. getting drunker and drunker during the day. She gives a kid some alcohol at a. She uh, does at their little Christmas gathering thing they're doing. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes. Um. So by the time she's home, uh, and Mister Harrison's there with Chris, Jess, and Phil, she's um completely steaming. She yeah. just needs to get sent to bed after explaining that mm-hmm. uh, about giant tortoises that uh have sex in three days. <laughs> Doesn't she? She does. Uh, me- <laughs> Meanwhile, Mrs. McHenry, good old Mrs. Mrs. Mac. Mrs. Mac. Um, she. How would you describe her? I, f- I feel like over an iconic. Iconic. They <laughs> couldn't get Shelley Winters. Um, I think Shelley Winters would have done a great job. Um, or Bette Davis. You think Barb's got alcohol problems. Mrs. Mac has alcohol hidden in every corner of the fucking house. She's, it's weird <laughs> because she doesn't drink openly, no. even though she probably could because the rest of them drink openly. <laughs> um, but she's got bottles of whiskey hidden in a book, uh-huh. um, hidden in the toilets, in the, um, what's it called? The back of the toilet. Yeah, the toilet lid. Basin. Is it basin? Oh, what's it called? Under the toilet lid. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, yeah, she's... Um, she's a character, isn't she? Yes. Um, she... Finds Claire's... I'm so sorry, these notes are awful. Oh, after putting a drunken barb to bed, Mr. Harrison, Chris, Jess and Phil help search for the missing girl. Mm-hmm. That's the part I missed. I do apologise. Uh, meanwhile, the housekeeper, Mrs. Mack, discovers Claire's body and the killer throws a crane hook into her face, hanging and killing her. Um, so, yeah, th- she... This is why I think Claudie had something to do with it, <laughs> Claude the cat, because she wouldn't have been up in the attic and found Claire's body if it wasn't for it's Claude. It's true, it's all Claude's fault. I, think, I feel like Claude <laughs> lured her up there. And him and Billy have some, like, connection to yeah, each other. Yeah, psychic connection. Um, that's going to be for the... Um, Stranger Things of our podcast. <laughs> In the park, the missing girl's disfigured body is found by the police. Jess answers another obscene phone call and decides to file a report with the police, only for Peter to, to surprise her. He attempts to persuade her into marriage, but she refuses and reaffirms her decision to have an abortion. Peter leaves angrily while Lieutenant Fuller arrives with a telephone lineman to bug the phone. Yeah, so, well, I don't know, red herring, not red herring. Yeah, absolutely. He is absolutely a massive red herring. Giant red herring. Yeah. But he's a red herring till the very end. Yeah. Uh, This Peter, yeah, he's creepy. 
Kia Delay plays him well. Mm-hmm. Um, um, yeah, in his turtleneck and his weird <laughs> haircut. Um, he comes downstairs after Mrs. Mac was just killed. You know, I mean, what more of a red herring do you need? Yes. Um, and right after the phone call. Yeah, yeah. So that's important to remember. So after the police leave, the killer murders Barb with a glass figurine. Um, fantastic scene. Yeah. Um, so she's pissed in bed. And the killer goes in. Um, some carol singers arrive at the door. And... <laughs> now this kind of... It's like Jingle All The Way. Like Jingle All The Way. Now I called it out in Jingle All The Way and I'm going to have to call it out in this film. The carol singers don't knock on the door. No. But they just start singing at the door until Jess opens it, which I find incredibly strange mm-hmm. and incredibly convenient because it covers the screams of Barb yeah. being stabbed to death <laughs> in a very artistic way. Yeah. Um, this is the the shot of Billy in his one eye. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> his one eye. Uh, one eye. One eye Billy. Um yeah, we only see it because of the, the shadows. <laughs> because of the shadows. But this is the iconic shot of the film, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So she's murdered. Um, uh, bless her. Um, where am I? Jess gets another phone call. Oh, yeah. Jess experiences another unnerving phone call in which the caller restates her argument with Peter. So during her argument with Peter, he referred to her getting an abortion um, as getting her getting a wart removed mm-hmm. uh, or her acting as if it's like getting a wart removed um and the caller recites this and peter's an even bigger red herring isn't yeah he? lieutenant fuller calls her to say the attempt to trace the call failed and theorizes that peter could be responsible but jess doubts this um this is when phyllis who had initially gone to bed uh, returns. Mm-hmm. I thought she took a sleeping pill, but clearly not. <laughs> um, but she returns. There's a kind of comedic scene with the search party, isn't there? Yeah. At the door. Um, and Phyllis goes back to bed. Um, I think it's making up a bit of running time and he- heightening the tension mm-hmm. at this point. So she goes back to uh, to check on Barb, actually. The door shuts and she's killed, seemingly off screen. Yes. Uh, Jess gets another phone call in which the killer alludes to some sort of transgression between two children named Agnes and Billy. The call is long enough to be traced and Sergeant Nash instructs Jess to leave the house immediately as the calls are coming from within the house. The calls are coming from inside the house. Uh, Concerned for Barb and Phil, she ventures upstairs where she discovers Barb's and Phil's bodies. The killer appears and pursues her. Jess locks herself in the cellar, only for Peter to appear outside one of the windows. He smashes the window and enters the basement. And it cuts there. Yeah. Um... Great build of tension. It, it really is. And we still don't see the killer in full. No. You know, he's chasing it and we still don't see him. And she doesn't either. No. Which is why she's still concerned that it could be... Yeah, Peter. Peter. Yeah. Um, and there's another character, this Chris. 
that it could be, yeah. you know, in the back of our minds, we're like, we haven't really seen him, so it could still be him. Any sort of mm. young guy in the yeah. film of a certain sort of build. In the 70s, everyone looked the same, so... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in terms of red herrings, Chris and Peter were really your top yeah. two. Um, but yeah, everyone did have very similar hair in the 70s. Um, but it cuts, so we don't know the fate. The police arrive and hear Jess screaming. They discover her barely conscious in the basement with Peter's bloody body next to her. Believing that Peter was the killer, they put Jess to bed in her room and leave her alone in the house with a cop standing outside. The killer's voice is heard from the attic, implying that he is still alive. The still undiscovered bodies of Claire and Mrs. Mack are seen through the attic window before the house's telephone begins to ring leaving Jess's fate ambiguous. Perfect ending. Such a good ending. Such a good ending. It's literally... And I'm so glad he stuck to it. I was just like, do you know what? No. Yeah. I'm not going to give you a clear ending. This film is going to stay with you for the rest of the evening. Yeah. And you're going to think and try and figure out Jess's fate. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly with that phone call that keeps ringing. Yeah, every ringing, time someone ringing. dies, the phone rings. Every time someone dies, the phone rings. So we're led to believe that this is... But also the phone does ring in other circumstances. Yeah. So it's not a film used for one, uh, a phone used for one single purpose. So who is on the other line? Mm. Oh, you don't know. No. But apparently canon is that she survives. Yes. <laughs> According to Bob Clark, who's going to make a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute, just uh, one of the greatest horror films ever made. It really is. I don't, I, I don't feel like I did it justice um, in, in that. It really is a great masterclass in yeah. tension building. Yeah, it really is. And I'll tell you what isn't. Yeah. 2006 remake... Where we, uh, it's set at Delta Alpha Kappa at Clement University in New Hampshire on Christmas Eve. At the house, Claire Crosby, one of the sorority girls, is murdered in her bedroom by an unknown figure who suffocates her with a plastic bag and stabs her in the eye before we get the title card. And, you know, as I said in the last one, the fact that we didn't know Claire worked then because we still got a little bit of time with her. This is just some random person. Great, yeah. But th- this literally could be anyone. Yeah, like it's we'd... only afterwards that we realise this is Claire. Yeah. At least they established a slight bit of character in the first one. Mm. Not a fair bit of character, really, considering. Billy Lenz, a boy born with severe jaundice, uh, escapes from his cell in Clark Sanatorium, uh, kills a security guard with a candy cane, p- guts a pervy Santa with a single stab, and heads for his former home, the sorority house. Uh, before this, we get security guards doing that classic thing that they loved in the 2000s. we like, oh, this inmate, or oh, fucking weirdo he is. You know, where the security guard staff all have to discuss it with anyone who comes to visit. In this case, it's Santa Claus. And one of them says, well, after giving Billy his food, tastes like chicken, because it is chicken. Closest we could get to how mum would taste. What a fucking dumb line of dialogue. Get fucked. <laughs> they ate his mum, didn't they? Yes, he did. Kelly Presley and her boyfriend, <coughs> Kyle Autry, have a romantic moment in his car together when they discuss how excited they are at spending their first Christmas together. Kyle has a call with Kelly's sorority sister, Megan Helms, on the phone, and we don't hear what they say, but she slams the phone down. Oh. I forgot he was in this one. 
Everyone prepares to open a secret Santa presents whilst Megan watches a video of her and Kyle having sex on her laptop. Not exactly a scandalous video. It's not anything. really. I mean, I don't really want to judge people's <laughs> sex lives. I'm sorry if we do this. But I do find it quite strange that in all these films, they're under the sheets <laughs> and they're making a sex tape. Like, you ain't got any goodies on the show. What's the point? I know, you got a R rating, fucking go for it. Exactly. Megan begins to hear noises and goes up to the attic to investigate. Upon finding Claire's corpse, Megan is attacked and killed by the same killer who shoves a plastic bag on her head, stabs her in the face a few times and pulls out one of her eyeballs. Because, in for some reason, Billy and Agnes are obsessed with eyeballs in this film. Yeah, I'm not sure why eyeballs. <coughs> Excuse me. In the living room, the other sorority sisters, Kelly... Melissa Kitt, Heather Fitzgerald, Dana Mathis and Lauren Hannon, along with their house mother, Mrs. Mack, played by Andrea Martin, uh, discuss whether it's right or wrong to leave a secret Santa present for Billy every year. It means he's a serial killer when Lauren discusses how dark Christmas is and Mrs. Mack starts to provide some Billy exposition for his backstory. Yes. And because we're in 2006, we are taken back with flashbacks to Billy back in 1975, where he's constantly abused by his mother, Constance. With the help of her lover, she murders Billy's father, Frank, on Christmas Eve and buries his body in the house's crawl space. When Billy witnessed the scheme, she imprisons him in the attic. Back in modern day, the sorority receive a threatening call from the killer. <laughs> I say threatening loosely. Uh, the caller ID is Claire's mobile. Heaven's the only one who's bothered by it. No one else gives a shit. No. No one gives a shit about any of the calls in this film. No. And it, that's the thing. In the original, in the original, they were there because they were shocking. You know? They were really terrifying. Here, they're just like, oh, scary noise. Ooh. And then that's it. Well, calling mobile seems to just... A reason to identify where people are. Yeah. In this film. Or where a phone is. Mm-hmm. Um... But it's usually where you kind of expect it to be anyway. There's no great shock. Eve Agnew, um, a girl who is obviously a weirdo because she wears her glasses too close to her eyes, yeah. um, shows up, says Merry Christmas, tells everyone that they're her family now, gives Heather the glass unicorn weapon from the original as a present, and acts like the biggest red heron. <laughs> In 1982, Billy's mother impregnates herself from her own son in the attic. Due to her boyfriend's impotence to conceive another child, he keeps passing out whilst they're trying to get it on, basically. Nine months later, Constance gives birth to their daughter Agnes and uses the occasion of Agnes's birth to further reject Billy. And we cut straight back to Eve's face. Yeah. Who then disappears before Mrs. Mack can pass the secret Santa present on to her. Like, seriously, that is so lazy. So lazy. So lazy. You have no intention of this girl being a killer. No. And this whole incest thing, fucking done. So unnecessary. But the thing is, it always has to be more bigger, bigger, shocking. Yeah. You know, this is. Torture porn wasn't just in terms of gore Mm. necessarily. Um, Sometimes it's in terms of themes as well, where everything had to be over the top and uh, ridiculous. I will say the word ridiculous. This is ridiculous. This is so ridiculous. The girls get a call from Megan's phone. The caller repeatedly says, fuck Santa and she's my family now. 
I mean, oh yeah, wow, that's really shocking. Fuck Santa, oh my god. I know, yeah. When, when was, I've got written down here, completely out of context, is Santa Claus is dead a scary statement to make? Oh. <laughs> when was, is Santa... That's when the mother, um, the mother when Billy was younger, where she tells him that the Russian shot his reindeer down. Oh, yeah. Said, oh, Santa Claus is dead. Yeah. The mother in this is fucking ridiculous. She's straight out of a Rob Zombie film. Like, she really she is, is straight is. out of a Rob Zombie film. <laughs> she's like, Santa Claus is a... <laughs> she's fucking a child. She's smoking up close to the camera. Crushing bulbles over a baby because, you know, that's edgy. She's absolutely straight out of a Rob Zombie it's, film. Yeah, it's, it's the more, more, more school of filmmaking. Yeah. Kelly goes to see if Megan's in her room, but instead finds Kyle in there, who provides some more exposition about Billy. And we get our final flashback on Christmas Day 1991, where Billy escapes from the attic and disfigures eight-year-old Agnes by gouging her eye out and eating it. He then brutally murders his mother by dragging her into the kitchen with Christmas lights and beating her to death with a rolling pin, and her lover by shoving a Christmas ornament through his eye. He is caught by the police eating cookies made out of his mother's flesh and is sent to Clark Sanatorium whilst Agnes is taken to a local orphanage. And all of that happens in a film that's remaking a film that we have just described as a masterclass of subtlety. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It's not shocking. It's not scary. It's not effective. It's fucking stupid. There's no peaks and troughs. So there's no, there's no low moments to make the larger moments yeah. more shocking. Exactly. It's just, oh my God, it's just zero to 100 from the get-go. Yeah. Ah, Back in 2006, Claire's half-sister, Lee Colvin, arrives, searching for her, uh, for her sister with a big camp dramatic entrance and finds a present of the truth from Billy. Now, this is what we needed the whole film. Like, her entrance, where she does a big turnaround, she's like, I'm Claire's sister. It's like, okay, yes, this is what we need. This she's, is exactly what we need. She's got a bright eyeshadow on. Yeah. She's ready. Big fucking coat. Um... The present they find in the truth from Billy is Agnes's doll from 1991 with its eyes missing. Kyle is kicked out when Kelly discovers the uh, uneventful sex video from him and Megan. When the power goes out, someone watches Lauren while she has a shower. And Dana goes to the main breaker under the house but encounters the figure in the crawl space and is killed with a gardening fork to the back of the head. When they uh, receive a creepy call from Dana's phone, the remaining sorority sisters and Lee go outside to find her, only to find Eve, yes, yeah, she's in this film, by the way, decapitated in her car. Which one was Eve? Uh, glasses too close to her face. Made to look like it was Agnes. Red herring. Yeah. With the police unable to arrive in time due to a snowstorm, Kelly, Melissa and Lee decide to stay inside the house whilst Heather and Mrs. Mac flee. In the car, Heather is murdered with a big blood splatter on the windscreen, no idea what happened to her. And Mrs. Mack is accidentally impaled by a fallen icicle. I know, this is so ridiculous. Why? So ridiculous. She's not even murdered. No. Like, she's the best character in the fucking film. What are you doing? But she, she's not even murdered by Billy. No. She, she he knocks, you know, back into the building. And then the icicle kills her yeah I mean is that possible can that happen that's <laughs> I highly doubt it oh my god um, we, I mean we don't get icicles here but if we ever go to anywhere that does 
Well, she does get a great line of dialogue before this um, when Heather, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, uh, doesn't know what a car ice scraper is. Uh, and Mrs. Mack shuffles away out of the car, goes around to the front, starts scraping the ice, and she's like, privileged bitch, frigid southern princess. <laughs> Which is the most character development she gets, <laughs> no, yeah. actually. So, oh, she's a southern princess, is she? Okay, I didn't know that. Seeing as she got, like, two lines of dialogue. <laughs> Whilst Kelly and Lee descend to the garage to investigate... Melissa is attacked and killed by the assailant who gouges her eye out and drags her down the landing by her empty eye socket because we're in the UK and that's the version we got. Yes. Kelly and Lee return upstairs and find Lauren's eyeless corpse. Um, so Kelly sends Lauren? a text. Yeah, Lauren, the drunk. The token drunk? Yeah. Oh, okay. So she, she's actually gets no time. No. Time, does she? Kelly sends a text um, to try and find... Uh, one of the other characters, I can't remember which one it was, and the only reason I got it down is because it says you, the letter U, and at, the at symbol with a question mark. Yeah, you at. 2006. <laughs> Carl returns to the house, and the three go to investigate the attic. Whilst ascending the ladder, Carl is dragged into the attic to his death by the assailant, who is revealed to be Agnes, now an adult, who has arranged the bodies in classic slasher movie style with one of my favourite touches of the film, Eve's head on top of the tree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we get the ridiculous dialogue exchange where Kelly says, we're not your family, Agnes, and your brother's not here. And Agnes says, no, my daddy's here. <laughs> so fucking stupid. Because she's not lying. He's a brother and a dad. Um, yeah. Billy entered the ass... Entered... But she looks so much older. Than I know, him. yeah. It's weird. <laughs> I don't know why... Played by a man, by the way. Uh, that's what I thought initially. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, we're going for the transgender yeah. killer. I was like, please don't, please. Um, thankfully not. Thankfully not. Uh, as Billy enters the attic, Kelly and Agnes struggle, leading the two of them into an empty space between the walls of the house. As the killers converge towards Kelly, Lee helps her escape before they start a fire, leaving Billy and Agnes to burn to death. Later, as Kelly and Lee recover at the hospital, Billy dies from his burns. Whilst Kelly goes for an x-ray, Agnes appears in her hotel room and kills Lee by snapping her neck. When Kelly returns to her room, Agnes appears through the ceiling and attacks her, but Kelly uses a defibrillator to kill Agnes. Kelly's parents arrive and take her home. But if you're watching this in America, then Billy came back to life, killed the morgue assistant, uh... Fingy Bob still dies, Lee still dies, uh, Agnes still gets killed by a defibrillator, but moments later, Billy enters through the ceiling and chases Kelly to the stairwell. They briefly fight, ending with Kelly pushing Billy off the railing, where he is subsequently impaled on the tip of a Christmas tree, killing him. And that's Black Christmas 2006. It's Black Christmas 2006. Absolute unnecessary garbage. <laughs> it, re it really is. It had the potential to be camp. Yeah. With that cast. Yeah, yeah. It had the potential Great to be cast. camp. And it wasn't. It was just grim. Yeah. And way too dark. Like, seriously, way too dark. And we'll get on to that with cinematography, won't we? Yeah. And that now brings us to 2019. Yes. So we begin with a little quote from the fictional Calvin Hawthorne. You love it when we get a fictional quote, don't we? The, yeah, I'm not a huge <laughs> fan. 
Um, he's the founder of Hawthorne College, 1819. And he apparently he said, Man possesses powers so formidable they can only be considered supernatural. With a proper education, men can wield these powers and go forth into the world. And that's basically the plot of the film. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Uh, we get some men in robes chanting in Latin, a bust of an old man, and then women screaming to begin the film. The screaming then turns into laughter, and we're introduced to this film's non protagonist sorority sisters <laughs> what <laughs> so these aren't so these are sorority sisters but these are the ones that join in later are on. they they are yes oh well, so kind of a focus on them yeah um so these are who i obviously initially thought were our protagonists ah. but they're not so um on the campus of hawthorne college Delta Sigma sorority sister Lindsay is walking home after talking to her fellow sister Una, and these uh, Una is the girl um, who's laughing, the, mm. the screaming to laughter. Una is Lindsay's secret Santa, and she got her the perfect gift for some self care. Dildo. Dildo. Um. So, yeah, hopefully she'll take advantage of that after the uh, winter holidays. Uh, Lindsay then gets a direct message from someone claiming to be Calvin Hawthorne, the school's founder. I read that lovely quote from him at the beginning. She thinks she's being followed by a random guy, only to see that she is being stalked by a cloaked figure wearing a mask. Now, this annoyed me. Because isn't it quite the coincidence that the guy who is just walking behind her is messaging on his phone at the same time that she's getting DMs? Absolutely, but there's two ways you can look at this. Now, in 2019, I thought the exact same as you. That's, I was like, okay, this is a fucking dumb opening scene. But when you watch it, considering some of the events that have been in uh, the media since, and, you know, coming to light about... Um, girls being attacked late at night should have every reason to be panicking about Abs the guy behind her. Yeah. But it's lazy writing that he happens to be texting at the same texting time. Texting with the DMs. Yeah. That's, that's the point. But this is the whole film. This is the problem. Yeah. It's, on one hand, you can see the messages, you can see exactly what they're trying to do. So, yes, absolutely. Go for it. This is a great message. We are on board with everything they're saying. But then on the other hand, it's like, okay, this is also lazy writing and lazy directing Yeah, with the way you're going about it, yeah. which is so frustrating. It, it's a, it's a cliched trope Yeah, where it's a pure coincidence that the red herring is doing exactly the same thing yeah. that the killer is doing at the same time. Mm. Um, yes, she has every right to be wary of the guy mm. who is walking quite close behind yeah. her, um, to be fair. Um, she instinctively gets her keys in her hands, mm -hmm. ready to use as a weapon. Uh, I think all young women are aware of that. Yeah. Um, and have been taught to do that. So she's absolutely in her right to be mm. wary of this guy. Because the guy is, is quite close. Yeah. It's just bad writing. There's this cliched messaging and she's getting mm. DMs at the same time. Um, and also, why is this guy who was very clearly much older than her 
DMing from a the college DMs. I'm assuming it's never specified, obviously, for copyright and such. um, What DM Mm. um, app they're using? Um, But yeah, she instinctively gets her keys in her hands. Mm. Um, She he crosses the road. Just as she turns round, ready to defend herself, mm-hmm. um, she yells, and he continues to cross the road in his own world. Mm. Um, he hasn't got earphones in or anything like no. that. I did find it weird that he doesn't react to her turning around with keys in her hand, going ah, <laughs> and he's just carrying on messaging, yeah. crossing the road. Um, I did think that was. Uh, again, not not great. What um, about the messages in this in comparison to the phone calls in the other two? I mean, obviously, it's not as horrific as the original. I found it a little more threatening than the re- the two thousand six remake, though. Um, I think, I think now we're looking more into why she's reacting the mm. way she is. I think uh, it is a scarier. Yeah, I mean, the the first one is a pig and a reindeer emoji. And then it's what do a Christmas ham and a sorority girl have in common? They both squeal before they die. Yeah. That's scarier than fuck Santa Claus, fuck Santa Claus. Of course. <laughs> um, and also, I think the reaction, like, she is horrified. Yeah. Um, but she's also ready to defend herself. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the original, Barb plays it off as a joke. Yeah, yeah. The girls are horrified, but they don't mm. actually dwell on it too much. No. They're not really actually kind of prepared to do anything about it. No, and, and even when they do, the police just fucking dismiss them anyway. Exactly. But that's also a theme in this film. Yeah. Um, I can see why... I, I, I don't... I don't see why this is called Black Christmas. Really. But I can see why it's connected to the original in certain ways. Yeah. I mean, we're really having to delve into it. It's a stretch. It's a stretch. But these things are taken from it. I mean, the phone calls, they're texting this. Yeah. You know, Claude the cat who killed everyone in the original um, is Claude that the cat. Yeah. Who is also responsible for someone's deafness. Exactly. So Lindsay tries running into another house for help, but another masked man is there. Again, for me, this is poor writing. This is a residential area between yeah. her home and campus. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a real coincidence that this is, of all the houses to choose uh, for her to get help from, yeah. it's the one where the masked, the other masked assailant mm. is already there. Yeah. I do. I think that's just... I, I know I'm picking... It, straws or whatever or whatever splitting hairs um but i do think it's lazy writing it's so reliant on coincidences and it's it's a twice in one scene yeah and it's a very anticlimactic scene as well because we obviously see her death after this i mean we see it happen but then because it's pg-13 it's like okay she has just been stabbed and there's no blood whatsoever yeah so as she pleads for her life the cloaked figure grabs an icicle and stabs Lindsay in the chest, killing her. He then drags her body away. As she's trying to get away, which causes, like, snow angels in the ground. To make it look like a snow angel. Yeah, it's cool enough effect. Actually, yeah, decent effect. Um, In another sorority house, MKE, is Riley Stone, who lives with sisters Chris, Marty, Jessie, 
Helena and Fran. Um, we're introduced to Fran straight away when she bursts into Riley's room and announces, I have a final in 10 minutes and I can't find my diva cup. Riley then passes Fran a sanitary towel and she makes awkward eye contact <laughs> whilst putting it down her jeans. <laughs> and uh, obviously... Um, and um, into her underwear. Yeah, it's such a weird choice. It's... I, again, <laughs> and we're going to keep saying this. Like... I understand what they're trying yeah. to do. And if this is aimed at a young girl, she's going to think, what's a diva cup? And then find out what a diva cup... Find out that a diva cup is actually a good thing. Mm. Uh, really helps the environment, yeah. you know. And she's going to find out what that is and understand that. But in terms of a film, you know, I, I don't... And I have female friends, and I know everybody's different, but it's the awkward eye contact. Yeah, that's so unnecessary. We shouldn't be stigmatising, um, you know, periods and sanitary towels and tampons Absolutely. and whatnot. Never. You know, it, it, it's ridiculous that, that it is even stigmatised in the first place. But... And, and the fact that they included that in this film... That's great. It should be normalised like yeah. that. You know, that should be shown in the film. Why not? You know? But the scene probably should have ended after she got the sanitary towel and then left the room. The, yeah. And the, the, uh, the eye contact thing. Do you know what? Even if you quickly shove it down, that's great. The eye contact thing makes it questionable. It's the, the way they're looking at each other and then she, like, laugh, does a, a laugh at mm. the end. And I, I don't know. Maybe I'm... Um... What's it called? Uh, not is it reflect deflecting? No, projecting. Project- Thank you very much. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting my own personal sensibilities onto this, but I couldn't imagine doing something that I perceive to be quite personal. So and the door's wide open as well. I just it just felt really weird. It's, it's I weird. Don't, it's a weird. Shot. I couldn't. Can I have quite a few female friends, and I couldn't imagine them ever doing that. Mm. in my room I, mean, I you know the thing obviously is, I wouldn't have any but you know you would pass it and then they would deal with it in the bathroom you know use my bathroom whatever I just I just couldn't understand them doing it the thing is everyone everyone is different it just doesn't translate onto screen it, that's the thing <laughs> because it actually makes it laughable when actually they're giving out a, a, a great a, message a yeah. healthy message about the diva cup um <laughs> I didn't think we'd go that in depth into it, but it's just it's just something that made me think. Oh, who are these characters? You know what what is the, you know what is this? Um, Riley goes to a class taught by Professor Gelson, played by Carrie Els. Carrie Els. Els. Um, who has an English accent in this film, and uh, interesting <laughs> in trivia, he actually has an English accent <laughs> in real life. The gas man over here thought he was putting on the shittest English accent. Because his fucking performance is alarming. His performance is awful. Let's get this this out there right now. And we'll discuss characters and performances later. But spoiler alert, there's two good performances in this film. Everyone else is fucking shocking. And I think that's why the Diva Cup scene is so awful I think that's also why it's so awful. The actress who plays Frank isn't amazing, is she? Imogen Poots is great. And the actress who plays Chris is great. But fuck me, everyone else is fucking rough. 
For a big budget, mainstream, theatrically released film, this is fucking rough. Kerry Owls as well. I mean, obviously he's very well known for The Princess Bride. I've never seen it myself. Um, Saw, you know, as Dr. Gordon, he has a few questionable moments in that. Mostly his performance is good. But then, as you may recall from when we discussed Saw 3D, not so good. And very much the case here as well. And I've seen him in like one or two of things and he's just not a very good actor. Well, he's going Scottish for that Christmas film. Um, Well, we won't be finding out, will we? (laughs) So, Professor Gelson, who was, he's come under fire for alleged sexism, and he knows that there was a petition going around started by Chris, um, who, um, who is described here as a heavy activist. Whatever a heavy activist is. She's an activist, I wouldn't say she's a heavy a activist. A heavy activist. I'm assuming they mean she's, um, a strong activist. Yeah, fine for what's right. Yeah. But she's she's an activist, but she she's an activist with a capital A. Mm. I don't yeah, know. basically. Yeah. Um. So she wants him to uh, be removed after he yelled at her for questioning why their reading curriculum didn't include a diverse set of authors. Chris is also noted for having a bust of Calvin Hawthorne removed due to Hawthorne's own noted personal history of misogyny. And I've got here, and this changes throughout the film, actually, but I did put here, Chris has a good point, but she's quite annoying. And she is quite annoying at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Um, She becomes more likeable as the film goes on. She becomes way more likeable as the film goes on. It does make me laugh that this introduction to uh, Professor Galson, like, even in this scene, and and the toxic masculinity, it just felt like this was a satire on Toxic. Toxic masculinity and and the way um, a lot of men think. Um, but even in this scene where he's introduced teaching, he's like, men, oh, and men are great. Oh, men are, oh, men are superior. Men are this, men are that. It's like, even, even your teaching in your lesson, like, it's constant, like, oh, men, 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 men. Well, he deliberately sets, um, Bridget? Who the fuck's Bridget? Bridget? What's her name? <laughs> Briley. Briley. Oh my God, I'm terrible with names. Um, so he deliberately sets up Riley, who didn't have her hand up to answer a question. No. But deliberately sets her up to assume that a writer who is writing mm-hmm. about uh, men's perceived superiority over women. Yeah. Or the importance of men. Um, he sets her up to believe that it's a man writing it. And he's like, well, actually, my dear... It's a woman. It's a <laughs> female author. Ha <laughs> ha! Don't you look silly. No, one you're just being one a twat. woman said this one thing <laughs> a long time ago, and now you look like a fucking bitch in my class. <laughs> and it's made worse. He's so unlikable, even more so because of how bad the performance is. Like I'm yeah. trying him off my screen. <laughs> um, Chris also makes a good point when she says. Whose classics are they? Because they're not mine. Yeah. Which is true. Absolutely. I mean, if people are paying for at the college, you know, surely they should have some part in choosing the curriculum. Mm. Now, I don't know. I mean, classics is kind of... A, a, I don't really know in terms of academia what classics really means. Um, but... Yeah. 
I think it's a term that could be changed. Yeah. I mean, classics change all the time. So it could incorporate female writers, LGBT mm. writers, you know, black writers. Yeah. Asian writers. Um, so she's actually got a really good point. And th- this is... She, she becomes more likeable after this point, thank God. Um, but she, she does, she's a little full-on. Yeah, she, she, she very much does what we thought this entire film did when we first watched yeah. it. Just constantly screams at you from the first moment she's introduced. Yeah. And that kind of sticks with you. But when you watch it again, like, and you actually... You know, take everything out of consideration. Because obviously we're analysing this scene for scene. Yeah. She definitely becomes more likeable. Yeah. The problem in a film is that she felt like a parody. Yeah. And the moment yeah. she feels like a parody, the points that she's making aren't being made yeah. anymore because she's a comedic character, because she's a, a parody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Um, so Chris and Marty go with Riley to the coffee shop where she works. A shy, nerdy guy named Landon, who has a clear crush on Riley, signs Chris's petition after overhearing them talk. Riley is then unnerved when a frat boy from DKO named Phil comes in, reminding the ladies about a frat event later that night in which former president Brian Huntley will be there. This troubles Riley since Brian raped her years earlier and even though she came forward, he escaped punishment. Um, so this really, I, I mean, if Professor Gelson wasn't already showing it, um, this also signifies that every straight white guy is a piece of shit. Yeah, they they're all in on it in this in this film, and it, it really is clear from the moment he walks in the room. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. At, at the end of the day, it. It's it's absolutely right. You know, these are the stereotypes from this. Um, what is the term for it? The culture, um, the frat, the the frat sexual assault culture, something that goes on in America oh, quite yes, a lot. No, of course, and these yeah. are there purely as the example for that. And these are your antagonists. And you know what? The putting them in that place works like that because you you know it does explore different areas. Like you get. Um, Landon, who is more likable, but they try and turn him that same way, which obviously we'll get more into later on. You yeah. you get um, Marty's boyfriend Nate, yeah, who comes across as really likable at first, but then flips out and tries pulling the whole not all men card later on. You know, it's it it really I I like the fact they've got this selection of characters in there. Again, is it dealt with correctly? Uh, yes and no. Yeah, it's 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 difficult to comment. The fact is, you know, we're two gay guys in Salford, UK. Um, we can't speak on behalf of women. Mm. We can't speak on behalf of American women. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's very much a problem here. Um, but there's a culture in America... Yeah. Um, the, the sororities and fraternities that we don't have here. Mm. Um, so we can't speak on that. We can't speak on behalf of women. Um, we can only really speak from what we see. Yeah. Um, and what we've, you know, obviously done our homework on. And, we, you know, we, we do keep up to date with uh, 
I was going to say women's issues. That sounds very Victorian. Um, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, very much yeah. keep up with it. So, but we can only speak from our perspective. Um, so I would never, ever turn around and say that anything that this film talks about mm. is invalid. No, Particularly no. by female filmmakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we can speak of, though, is the execution, the execution. in regards to it yeah. being a film. And that sounds very Dragula, doesn't it? <laughs> We're not talking about your drag, but it's your drag in terms of this competition. Um, so we can only speak of it in terms of us watching mm. a film and us being horror film fans. Yeah. And it just feels too... Um, I don't... It's, it's the way the soundtrack. It's with... the way when you see certain characters and the soundtrack changes and everything. It spoon feeds it to you. This, yeah. This, this really this whole film spoon feeds everything to you. Like nothing's left to the imagination. It's all there's no subtlety in place, um, but everything is is given to you straight up at face value. And sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, in in case of the villains, I think having these guys in the roles of the villains is great. But does it work for a horror film? Not particularly. No. Not particularly. And then you get very sort of teen drama moments. Mm. Like like this one. And he comes in and he's all smug. Just there for exposition. And an you know? There for exposition. Um, it does feel very forced. Yeah. As he seemed to only go in to order a coffee yeah. just to annoy them. Mm-hmm. And it very feels very much so popperish, so that they can turn around and say, oh, he's, you know, best friends with the person that raped you. Mm. And it very, it, it just feels like, oh, oh, okay. Um, are we just going to throw that out there and not really look at it? Mm. Um, but I think it, it does delve into, I mean, I've, I know I've literally just said everything is at face value, but there's a few other things like later on where Riley gets cut by one of the killers and he leaves his mark on her mm. and then leaves her there and then she's defended by other women. And it's it's things like that where I think a lot of the time we debate on this podcast where, you know, sexual assault should be used in films and when it shouldn't be used in films. Like, if it's been exploited, it shouldn't be used. This case, I think the inclusion feels... Like, it should be there. Yes. Because of the audience it's targeting, it's kind of like a warning sign, um, especially with the uncomfortable song that's coming up, which which is uncomfortable because it's meant to be uncomfortable. This yeah. is, you know, uh, it is looking at a culture that goes on in America, which is shocking and probably still goes on to this very day. And it should be there to raise awareness for that. So on that, I, I, I do think this film does absolutely need to include... The sexual assault. It doesn't show Absolutely, it. Absolutely. It yeah. doesn't show it. No. But not in graphic detail. No. No. But you know it's there. You know it exists. And that's scarier than the horror elements. Yeah, exactly. Which makes, when it goes into horror territory, it makes it feel ridiculous. Yeah. And it looks generic. And Yeah, and generic. Yeah. And in turn, it makes the film ridiculous. Yeah. Which makes the message ridiculous. Yeah. And when I do think there is a good message here... The problem is, not everyone who watches Black Christmas has a podcast where they're going to sit here exactly. and discuss exactly. it. And we're not going to sit and make notes on yeah. their laptops whilst they're watching a film. So it should be clearer yeah. 
and work better. Definitely. It absolutely should. Uh, Chris redeems herself when she throws a drink in his face. Mm-hmm. Props to Chris for that one. Uh, the sisters dress up for the event that evening and they go to the frat house. Um, this is obviously um, a play on... Mean Girls. Mean Girls, because they're all dressed in s- sexy Santa outfits. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a critique of Mean Girls? I don't think so. No, I mean, like I said, I swear I read that when we were doing a Blumhouse episode, yeah. but I think that's just a bit of trivia someone shoved on now. I think so, because I don't think it's a critique. No. I think it's a reference. Yeah. I mean, it also references Exorcist 3 later on. It Spoiler does. alert. I don't think it's critiquing that. No. Um, but yeah, they're in their Mean Girls sexy Santa outfits. While the ladies practice their song, Riley wanders and finds a room where some frat brothers are performing a ritual with Hawthorne's bust, which is leaking black liquid from its orifices. Riley sees a pledge have some of the liquid smeared on his head. Now, I'm going to say this now. She decides not to tell anyone yeah. that this happens. <laughs> this incredibly strange... Not until much later on in the film, after everything's gone tits up, <laughs> does she decide that this is an interesting story. It, it's funny because a, a common criticism of ours on this podcast is when people know they're in a horror film. Yeah. The, the problem with this is she doesn't know she's in a fucking horror... So like, come on, seriously... We could suspend this belief to a certain amount. Just go and tell them. Just go and tell them. Yeah, I mean, like, that's not even unbelievable, no. you know? Of course you'd tell someone. Like, she probably got a phone as well. You know, take, <laughs> take a, a picture. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those weird things. Like, if this happened to me in real life, you're damn right I'd be telling people. I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> guess what I just saw? Um, she then goes to another room where she finds Phil and Helena about to have sex. But seeing that Helena is far too intoxicated, she prevents Phil from taking things further. And Riley sends Helena home in an Uber. Um, Phil does say, all you bitches are the same. You act like you want it, but you're all a bunch of teasers. And he also goes on to say, you know Brian would never have done what you said he did. Yeah. Um, Again, forced exposition that shows us what type of character he is. Yeah. But there's probably a more subtle way of doing it than having him literally tell the audience what type of character he is. It's a difficult one because his words sound cliched, but they probably sound cliched because this is what men say repeatedly in real life. Yeah. And therefore it has made its way into film yep. and television. The fact that it sounds cliche is a problem. It yeah, should exactly. never have got to that point. Exactly. Um, Helena says that she just thought he was cute. I've got here um, that Helena has absolutely broken girl code anyway. Yeah. Because she should absolutely not be trying to find, not even find cute. There is nothing cute about the guy who torments your best friend. Mm-hmm. About her rape. Yeah. And the the guy who completely denies and is best friends with the guy who raped your friend. Mm-hmm. She should be nowhere near that no. guy. If I was, um, oh my God, Riley, Riley. I'd be fucking fuming. Mm-hmm. I was like, you do not fucking talk to that guy. Let, let alone, you know, obviously what happened has happened and he took it too far because she was intoxicated. But she turns around and said, oh, I just thought he was cute. Fuck you, bitch. 
Spoiler alert, she turns out to be an arsehole by the end anyway, <laughs> so... The, the red flag... Yeah. Very much um, came to fruition by the end. Unfortunately for Riley, Helena was supposed to perform with Chris, Marty and Jesse. So Riley... Or Jess. It's Jess, not Jesse, isn't it? Whatever. Jesse. So right, Jesse. Yeah. yeah. So Riley must now take her place. The ladies go on stage to perform, but Riley freezes up when she sees Brian's smug face looking at her. The other three help her before Riley gathers up the nerve to perform the song, which is meant to call out the frat's rape culture. There we go, that's what I'm... That's what Fra- I'm uh, yeah, fraternity rape culture. Do you... I didn't get any of the lyrics um, down. No, but it, it's, it's very much um, describing... What happened to Riley when she was uh, passed out and he took advantage of her? Yeah, and it it's set to a sort of a playful tune. Yeah. And it begins, you know, very flirtatious. The men are like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that is what's so satisfying about this scene is the fact that they think it's great because they're dressed all sexy and, you know, they're singing this playful tune about having sex. But then when they turn it around, the reaction of the men in the audience is... Uh, Quite the picture. Yeah, and it's every man in the audience yeah, turns on you. them, starts throwing stuff. Apart booing, from uh, Landon. Apart from Landon. And then the women are supportive of the song. Yeah. Um, afterwards, uh, Riley says, maybe that'll teach Brian Huntley not to rape other girls. Which I thought was quite strange. It is they, quite strange. They act as if this song is a victory for Riley. Mm-hmm. Um, and performing this song and seemingly embarrassing him in public, mm. it is sort of... And, and later on, Chris said, oh, you won. I think it was Chris. Yeah. Said you won, you know, but you performed that song. I just found that a little strange. It's like, strange, yeah. Surely there are no winners in a situation no, no. like that. And what, from a song? And like, mm. I, I didn't really understand it, Again, it's another mentality. one that you can dump into the category of, uh, you know, good intentions executed badly because, you know, at the end of the day, her finding the confidence to do that is some form of achievement. Absolutely. But that's not her winning. You, 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 you know, there's no winning from that, you know? No. It, it's a small victory. It's a small victory. To embarrass him. But it's the way they kind of... It's, he's not been arrested, you know? No. He's, he's not been arrested. He's not been murdered, it, you know? It, it's it's the way that by the end of the film, it's kind of like that's that part of the narrative yeah. over with. Mm-hmm. Which I just thought was quite strange. Um, th- yeah, so I've got here, the women in there love it, but naturally the frat brothers react with anger. As they head to another party, Landon joins them. Meanwhile, a cloaked figure stalks Helena in her room and seemingly kills her off screen. The next morning, Riley says bye to Fran, who is going away for the holiday break. Did you forget about Fran? <laughs> <laughs> um, after Riley goes to join the others in getting a Christmas tree, Fran is left alone at the sorority house. Searching for Claudette everywhere. Searching everywhere for Claudette. Claudette is literally like two metres away from her. Meowing her to her death. Meowing her to her death. She's running late, but she she's wondering if Claudette's in pain just because she's meowing. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, unfortunately, in a, well, death 
pretty much taken directly from Exorcist 3. <laughs> straight from Exorcist 3. Straight from Exorcist 3. She's strangled with Christmas lights by a cloaked figure. I mean, we... I mean, I was quite excited for that death scene, seeing it in the trailer. Was it in the trailer? No, it wasn't in the trailer. No. No, you're thinking of The Nun, which I'm also thinking... does the exact oh, same I'm thing. Of the, nun. the Nun does the exact same thing. Oh my god, it does. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, no, The Exorcist 3 was uh, very popular around that time, clearly. <laughs> oh, so, clear... so by this point, I was like, oh my god, not again. <laughs> Uh, but that iconic death from yeah. Exorcist... The only thing anyone ever remembers from Exorcist 3. <laughs> hey, um, come on. There's a lot to remember from Exorcist 3. Go on, then. George C. Scott. Doing what? A, a fantastic performance. As? The... Oh, I can't remember who played. But the exorcism scene in the uh, prison at the end. It's great. Great film. I never said it wasn't a great film. Very memorable Just film. Just no one remembers... <laughs> Compared to the original, no one remembers no. fuck all. Um, while out on the town, Riley gets a call from Helena's mother, who says she never arrived home that day like she was supposed to. In great horror movie tradition, Helena's mother calls with no caller ID. <laughs> Riley And pr- starts to call like... Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, she asks, well, she doesn't ask, but Riley says that she'll be in touch, I'm assuming, if she can't find Helena. But it's no caller ID. No. Because we're in a horror film. So I don't know how she's going to get in touch with Helena's mother if she can't find her. Um, that's not really dealt with. No, it's Another not, thing no. not dealt with. In that's, the that's fine. Uh, Riley that. then starts getting messages from the Hawthorne account that comes off as threatening. She was also informed by Una that Lindsay never got back home that night either. Riley goes to campus security for help to report that Helena is missing, but she is met with clear indifference. Yeah. Yeah, a cop couldn't care less. He couldn't give two shits. Um, did you have a certain line of dialogue down before that scene, between the Christmas tree shopping and uh, her speaking with Landon to see if it was him? No. Well, I got it down, you, and it's the Jesse. It's the like, Jesse character. Yeah, it's the Jesse character, um, who's baffling to me. Where she says, "Guys, do I just turn on the oven and put the ham in? Seems too easy." Jesse is a fucking moron. Now, you. This is one thing that really struck me the first time I watched it, and the second time. This film's going to be empowering to women, right? And you know, for the most, it it really is. It's you know, it's a feminist film, clearly through and through. It, you're not allowed to forget that. Great. Why the fuck make Jesse such a fucking idiot? But isn't inherently a woman who doesn't know how to cook more I suppose, in with a feminist mentality? Yeah, if you look at it like that, yeah, that's a very good point. But also something how she says a little later on as well, just highlights her as a she, it does and this again it's in the execution yeah. is that I feel like potentially the, the filmmaker was trying to make a point about do you know what not all women yeah. need to know how to work a fucking oven and that's great or how to cook a ham excuse yeah. me um, I think she knew how to work an oven she just didn't know how to cook a ham um, you know not all women have to be able to do mm. that 
Um, but in the execution, yeah, it just makes her look like a dumbass. Yeah, it just it just makes her look. Especially stupid. when she discusses one of her favorite games soon. Yeah. Um, the officer escorts Riley to the DKO house to see if any of them have taken Helena. He's still quite indifferent, even yeah. though he's going to see if someone's been kidnapped. Uh, but nobody answers, so the cop leaves. Riley then runs into Gelson, accidentally dropping his papers. Among them, luckily enough, she finds a <laughs> list of the ladies' names, including her own. Gelson appears to intimidate Riley by noting that the college has sacrificed a lot to uphold certain traditions and that they have come too far to have their names tarnished. Um, I've got here, Carrie Ells is truly awful. He's tried so hard to look suspicious. To look suspicious. (laughs) I mean, he's coming across. He's camp. um, He's hamming it up. It's not a good performance. Um, After this, we get some of the worst dialogue in the film. Uh, We have another reference to Cooked Ham. Where uh, Jesse says, uh, who knew it would be this easy? I could have been cooking ham my whole life. And then Marty says... Don't, do you know who's been cooking ham? <laughs> Carrie Carrie Ells. Ells. Marty says, Nate, since when do you drink beer? And Nate says, I like beer. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jesse says, okay, new game. Uh, new game, my favourite game. Top three animals, go. Are you fucking serious? Your favourite game is top three animals? Apparently. Is it just top three? Top three animals. Yeah, but not animals specifically. No, animals specifically. Okay. She literally has top three Well, she three comes animals. across as dumb. <laughs> um, I, where were we now then? Um, so, so Riley runs back to the sorority house. Yeah, this is when Chris. Nate has his little uh, not all men rant. Oh, yeah. So Riley runs back to the sorority house to confront Chris, who uploaded the full video of their performance from the night before. But she also recorded Riley saying, that'll teach Brian not to rape another girl. She thinks the video is what is causing the DKO frat to antagonise them. Although Chris is apologetic, she defends her stance by saying that they cannot let the men try to scare them. Snaps for Chris. Um, I've, I actually just wrote down Chris back at it again with the good points. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. I got nothing else to say, to be fair. No, right? I, think it's just, no, I, think it's, I think it's a good... I think this is part of the film that was dealt with quite well, yeah. is, you know, um, because women, you know, women like it's Riley very... might want to back down. Yeah, it's very simple. Yeah. Riley's scared. Yeah. She has every right to be scared. She's been intimidated. Yeah. But Chris isn't backing down. She has every right to not back down. Exactly. Uh, Jesse, who left the room due to arguing, goes to look for Christmas lights. After plugging one set in, she is attacked by a cloaked figure. Again... After asking if Christmas lights expire. Yeah, asking if Christmas lights expire. Um, I mean, the goal... Well, not, I suppose we're not in the Golden Girls territory, but she's giving me rose <laughs> from the Golden Girls. Um, Marty's boyfriend, Nate, interjects by saying that the ladies have been taking things too far and that they shouldn't assume all men are out to get them. Marty argues with him and sends him packing out the door, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know where this change has come from with Nate. Well, he started drinking beer. 
Did you not notice the little sound at the same time? No. That's them trying to possess him. Oh. You know, when he comes back and he says he had a migraine, it's because the other frat guys are trying to possess him. Oh. <laughs> They're oh, at the window no. somewhere like, here, here, Nate, to tell them what for. Oh, no. <laughs> and that made him start drinking beer. He's meant to start drinking beer and say, not all men. <laughs> oh, shit. See, this is where it kind of comes across <laughs> as a parody. But uh, this, this this argument he had here was a massive thing this year. So yeah. this is like two years ahead of its time. But this could have been... It's always been an argument, huh? Yeah, I know, uh, but, but I mean, it came to the front of yeah, of course. media this but, year. I mean, this could have been a comedy. Yeah. I mean, it's like... Oh my god, you've suddenly started drinking beer. Mm. <laughs> you used to drink yeah. pina coladas. Yeah. Where's this toxic mass you know? Yeah. Um he does not all mend them. Um and he and he calls Marty hysterical. Mm-hmm. That's another big one, isn't it? Um, yeah. The cliche factor that's actually based on real life mm-hmm. because men still do that. Um, the other three start getting more threatening messages until they find a figure with a bow and arrow shooting at them. Marty is grazed in the leg and they run to hide. Riley goes to get a phone and keys to get um to get them out, while Chris tends to Marty before going to find Jesse. Um, Chris, who chose ants as one of her favourite animals, uh, because they're stronger in numbers and strong. I, I can't remember. Um, she says, "You've got to fight." We're ants, Chris. Um, Chris comes across Jessie tied up in Christmas lights with a glass shard in her face. Downstairs, Nate shows up again uh, post-headache. They didn't get the best best of him. And he finds Riley. She tries to explain the situation to him, but he gets shot in the face with an arrow. (laughs) He does say, nobody hurts my girls. (laughs) This is a man's, and then he gets shot. Yeah. So I don't know how was he going to finish that sentence. It's man's job. Man's to... job. <laughs> this is a man's world, but it'd be nothing without a woman or a girl. <laughs> um. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how he was gonna. I'm not sure what the message was there. No. What What are they trying? It's just to that say? He, he just gra- he just uh, randomly got a slight bit of toxic masculinity back, and then yeah. uh, and got killed. <laughs> Uh, the figure attacks Riley, but she stabs him in the throat with her keys, killing him. Another figure attacks as Chris and Marty come downstairs. Marty threatens him with a hatchet, but the figure stabs her in the stomach. Riley and Chris run to the kitchen and are attacked, but they stab the figure to death. Just before Marty dies, we're led to believe that she contacts the police. The same police officer from earlier goes to Delta Sig, though, to find Una killing a figure... But the figure ki- uh, but another figure kills the officer. There's absolutely a reference to Silence of the it's Lambs. Silence of the Lambs, yeah. Which is great. If you're going to reference a film, you might as well reference the best film ever made. So, props to you, Mama. Uh, Riley notices there was no blood coming out of the guy they killed. It's because it's PG-13. Because it's PG-13. <laughs> she unmasks him to find the pledge she saw the night before, realising he was possessed. Um, again, I've got here. This is an interesting story that I'm surprised she's only telling now. Yeah. Uh, Riley goes to DKO by herself to confront the frat 
after her and Chris argue again about whether Chris believes Riley or not about the whole mm-hmm. possession thing. The police wouldn't believe her when she was raped. Why would they believe her now? Mm-hmm. Is essentially what she's saying, you know. They have to tackle it head on. Which is quite interesting because it wasn't too long ago that Chris was the one who said, we need to tackle this head yeah. on. And so it is interesting how those roles have reversed slightly. Um, Riley is found by Landon, who offers to help her. He goes into the frat house to break things to get the brother's attention. Mm-hmm. Tells him to suck a fat fart. He does tell him to suck a fat fart. Well, they have ruined all his uh, DJ stuff, haven't they? Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Chris drives to get help and picks up Una and her sisters after learning that they are also being attacked. Um, where's their story? I know, yeah. <laughs> I've been interested in their stories. Are well, they planning on doing that as a sequel? Maybe. Has there ever been a film that's just, like, it's a sequel, but it's actually just the same story from a different perspective? I think there has. They were planning on doing that with uh, Cloverfield. Oh, were they? Like, there was another guy with a camera on the bridge scene, uh, oh. so they were going to do it from his point of view. That would have been interesting. Mm-hmm. I wonder if a film ever... Let us know in... <laughs> if it has. Well, I mean, the MCU's doing it all the fucking time, so... <laughs> yeah, essentially... <laughs> Let us know if a good film has ever done it. Oh shit! Don't start this uh, shit. Let us know if a, a non roller coaster is like. Oh, please confirm to everyone that you're not being serious. I'm not being serious. <laughs> anyway. Annabelle creation. The ending is, uh, the start of Annabelle. Oh yeah. Yeah. But it's the same thing happening to them. Are yeah. They in the same yeah, yeah, place? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they get the neighbors get killed. Remember. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, so, one of the frat bros says to uh, Riley, uh, not Riley, Landon, got a headache, bro. That's just the founder bringing out your true alpha. <laughs> oh, my God. This this should have been a parody. This film should have been a parody. Uh, Riley makes her way inside and finds a room where Helena is tied up. She frees her, but is then knocked out by a cloaked figure, all while Helena gives a sinister smile. Uh, the cloaked figure says, nice work, sweetie. <laughs> Actually, I made that sound more camp. <laughs> nice work, sweetie. It's not made West. I can't not make it camp. <laughs> no, I just sound like Joanna Lumley. Uh, anyway, Mar- Riley wakes up in the room with the bust where Landon has been brainwashed to be a pledge. Gelson, Brian and other frat boys reveal themselves as part of a cult who has long upheld Hawthorne's sexist ideals. And this was featured in the trailer. Yeah. They discovered the bus leaked the black liquid and contained the power to allow Hawthorne's spirit to possess the pledges and give them inhuman strength. Helena was complicit and obedient, which allowed her to be spared. This doesn't last long as they use Helena to demonstrate their power by having a pledge violently break her neck. Riley appears to give herself up and submit but she just uses it as a distraction to grab her comb to attack Brian. So the comb, what they needed to set these possessed frat boys onto the women was an item of theirs. Yeah. So Helena had borrowed this from Riley earlier, this comb, blah, 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 blah. Um, the diva cup was one of them. And then it sort of set up that the women that were targeted 
are all women who uh well too feminist yeah. essentially are too fe- even some of them who were only ever so slightly feminist mm-hmm. um they were all set up to be murdered um i was a bit i don't know i don't know why it was played out like a slasher film where they're being killed one on one and then suddenly all these possessed frat boys yeah it's stupid start killing absolutely them. Stupid. it doesn't this end the ending really is shit did not need to be a call really is shit uh so um where was i oh riley appears to be giving herself up and submit but she just uses it as a distraction to grab her comb to attack brian soon chris leads una and her sisters inside to fight the brothers Brian attacks Riley, but she overpowers him and smashes his head hard enough to kill him. She then grabs the bust and destroys it, taking away the brother's powers. Chris then... Which is really weird, because apparently they're meant to be super strong, but they haven't really shown themselves to be (laughs) super strong. Because a lot of them have been killed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chris then grabs a lantern and throws it at Gelson, setting him on fire. The ladies and Landon leave and lock the brothers inside as the house burns to the ground. Um, absolutely oh. ridiculously stupid ending. Then we get a mid credit scene where Claudette, the cat, is licking up the black goo. Oh, yeah. <laughs> licking up toxic masculinity. Riley has a uh, one of those good-for-her smiles on her faces when the film ends. She does, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping she'd do the whole like, end of Suspiria where she's like, it's raining and she's yeah. relieved and, and such. Um, yeah, really awful ending. Yeah, it, it, it is. It, it it becomes parody. Yeah. It really does, uh, which makes the message so much harder to understand and to get. It's a frustrating film, especially on this rewatch where we enjoyed it more than we did the first time because it just shows there is a really good film to be found within this. Um, and I really hope Sophia Takao learns from the mistakes from this one and puts it into something that's even better. Yeah. Because there's so much potential there. There's so yeah. much potential. It's it, it's definitely got those signs in there as being something so much better. And there are some good, there are some really great scenes in there. There's so much messiness as well, though, to go with it. It it just really could have been something else. Yeah. It, it's a mixed bag, really. And for me personally, I think the bad outweighs the good. But I do think something great could have been made yeah. out of it. I think what held it back was that it's a remake of Black Christmas. Yeah. And that it had to be a slasher film. Absolutely. And I really do think that held it back. Um, other, I mean, other films have dealt with the same kind of subject matter. Promising better. Young Woman. Um, Promising Young Woman does it. And... Uh... Does it three times as good, and it doesn't commit to being a horror film. No, this, this didn't this need to be a horror film. Yeah, it it if because it was a remake of Black Christmas, it had to commit to being a horror film when it shouldn't have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I was thinking probably more Slumber Party Massacre. Yeah. Um, yeah. That takes the humor and goes with it, um, but still has that obviously mm-hmm. feminist um, touch to it. Yeah. Yeah, disappointing. Yeah, yeah, disappointing. But uh, I wouldn't say don't watch it, because it's not bottom of the barrel trash. No. And, you know, a film with a message like that has to be seen. Um, Just don't expect a slasher film. No, 
Oh, don't expect a don't good, expect Black Christmas. Don't expect a good slasher film, but expect a interesting yeah slasher film. <laughs> so getting into comparisons, we've got cinematography, scares, kills, and soundtrack. Again, the twenty nineteen film couldn't be any more different from the other two, but this will be us comparing it. Um, yeah, pretty much the Dracula speech that Chris gave earlier. Um, yeah. 1974, the POV shots, the intrusive cinematography. Oh my god, it is a beautiful film. It's just as stunning as it is terrifying. Those constant bright uh, Christmas lights. Yeah, and the thing is, using Christmas lights towards cinematography is not something I'm always a fan of, but it really works here. Yeah, it's disorientating. Yeah. Um, Like it's meant to be. Yeah. Um, yeah, re- just really well done, especially for what is a low budget. Yeah. Um, it's easily amongst the top five scariest films I've ever seen. Uh, it, it never gets any less effective, no matter how many times I watch it. Mm-hmm. And, and the scares don't necessarily come from the death scenes. No. Um, I find a lot of horror films, the shock or yeah. the scares or the horror comes from the death scenes. I actually find the build-up yeah. to be scarier than the eventual murders. The phone calls, Billy watching, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely. Uh, but when it does come to the kills, the off-screen kills are so effective. Yeah. It, it is a masterclass in what you don't see scares you. There's little to no blood. Exactly. You know, it doesn't need to be gory. Leaving it to your imagination is way more effective. And, now, I'm not sure if I've said this one before, but... Because you care about the characters, yeah, yeah. the kills are, even though less gory, they're more effective. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and the soundtrack is just perfect. It's absolute perfection. Yeah. You know, it's a sound that it's not easy to create and it, it shows. It, yeah. It's so unique mm-hmm. and it's so atmospheric. 2006... Cinematography is what it is. Dark is what it is. Oh my god, turn on the lights. For it, fuck's sake. There's some scenes where it's fine. Um, at a push. At an absolute push. It's fine in some scenes, but it is mostly just really dark. and It feels intrusive, but not in a stalker kind of way. It, I found the camera was often too close to the actors. Yeah. Um, like, when it's showing you Billy's mother, like I said... It's trying its hardest to show how obnoxious she is by shoving the camera in her fucking face. Yeah. It it really, it's so weird, it just doesn't work. Um, the dumb cannibalism storyline and incest to add to the horror, no. It's not scary. It's stupid. It tries too hard with the kills, which isn't always a bad thing. Um, you know, there are some good kills in this, as a slasher film, taking away the fact that it's a remake. The obsession with eyes is a little weird, but there's still some decent kills. Um, the icicle thing is, I'd say it's camp. It's camp. It's stupid. It um, is stupid. Yeah. But you know that's what you want to see in a slasher film. That's great. Yeah. But it's worse when you consider what film it's trying to remake. Yeah. It. it the thing is, if you're gonna go for something, you need to go for yeah. it. And it didn't fully commit to the camp. No. Um, which. It's jarring. Yeah. It's jarring. You have this silly death. And I enjoy I enjoy gore in yeah. films. I mean, um, if if you're if you're watching a you know, just a, a run of the mill slasher film, you know, a bit of gore is like, Oh yeah, nice. Yeah. You know, there's a magic to it, you mm. know? 
Um, but in a film like this and the film that it's remaking, like you said, um, it needs to fully commit yeah. Yeah. to being a camp, almost comedy. Yeah. Or it just doesn't work. Yeah. Because there needs that subtlety that the original had. The score isn't terrible, but it does feel like it's trying to rip off Nightmare on Elm Street every now and then. It does. And also, and I, I'm not necessarily against this, uh, but unlike the, orig- the original didn't do it, but um, there's a reliance on Christmas songs. Yeah. There's lots of Christmas songs. I don't really, Swan Lake. I really don't Swan Lake that the, they keep playing. Uh, the ballet is it theme. No, um, oh, the Sugar Plum Fairy one. Yeah. That's yeah. from the Nutcracker. Yeah, we're, we're sophisticated here, honestly. Uh, 2019. <laughs> we watched it last year, the Nutcracker. <laughs> 2019. Not the Kira Knightley version. 2019. The cinematography has some standout moments. Uh, I noticed this time around. There's like this thing they do where they slowly zoom in um, to certain scenes. Not necessarily when a lot's going on, but it kind of feels like that's a sort of nod to the 70s. Because it is something that happened a lot within cinematography in the 70s. Uh, not necessarily within Black Christmas, but yeah, I thought that was a nice little touch. It was alright. Yeah, it's, it's not um, phenomenal filmmaking by any means, but... It's not as lazy as two thousand and six tends to be. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I suppose it's indicative of of my issue with the film. It's trying. Yeah. It's just not quite succeeding. It's not scary in a horror kind of way. I mean, the subjects are scary in the fact that they're so close to real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a horror film, as we've mentioned, it doesn't work, and. In the same criticism as we gave to 2006, but in a completely different way, the kills don't fully commit. But it's frustrating here because they're not as subtle as the original, but not as graphic as the remake. They're somewhere in the middle, and this is entirely down to the PG-13 rating. Mm -hmm. Which, whereas I understand why they were going for a PG-13 rating and why I think it's, it's a great reason... There's no denying that it affects the film. Yeah. Like Jessie's death. Yeah. I mean, when I described it, I described a piece of glass in her face. You don't see her face with glass in it. The The chair turns around slightly and you get a slight bit of glass and then it cuts. Mm. Whereas if we'd seen her face with a large shard of glass yeah. in it, that would have been very shocking. Yeah. Um, whereas... It... The the cut is too obvious. Yeah. And it takes you out the moment. Yeah. Because you're like, oh. It's, it's obvious from the first scene with um, Lindsay. The icicle, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's obvious from that scene. As soon as you see that go into her chest, and you see it go into her chest, and there's no blood, not a sign of blood, you know, oh shit, this is... Yeah. This is PG-13. Um, which, again, you know, we don't want to see loads of gore. It's a black Christmas film, but then don't show the rest of the kill. You know? Commit to one or the other. Yeah, but black, the original Black Christmas, correct me if I'm wrong, is an 18. It's an 18, yeah. Because of the themes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not because of the violence. Exactly. It's because of the themes. It's, yeah, exactly. You know, Texas Chainsaw Massacre isn't, isn't a bloody film. No. Um, but the themes on display and the re- relentless scare, you know, the mm. relentless horror of it all makes it an 18. Yeah. Um... It it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can... 
It should have been R-rated, yeah. really. It should have been R-rated. And the soundtrack of 2019 is completely forgettable. I couldn't tell you a thing about it. No. Um, so the winner overall of our first few rounds are... This is obviously 1974. Of course. Moving on to characters. Uh, this is this was difficult. Uh, really difficult to compare. So I've, I've lined them up as much as I can. Um... Some may disagree with what I've come up with, but this is what I've got. So. Yeah. Final girl. So we have Jess, Kelly, and Riley. Uh, play, Jess played by Olivia Hussey in 1974. Uh, Kelly played by Katie Cassidy in 2006. And Riley played by Imogen Poots in 2019. Olivia Hussey is fantastic. She's so good. You know, as we mentioned, her character alone is enough of a feminist message uh, for the entire film. Yeah. You know, an empowering character who's taking control of her life and her body and, you know, she fights her way to the end. She does. She does. And she actually ends up killing who she believed to be the killer. Yeah. She fights back. Whilst also removing all of her life's problems by getting rid of this guy. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah to a certain extent. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't right in the end. No, she wasn't right. She didn't get a right killer, but, you but know. She, you know, she committed to it. Um, yeah, just for, for 1970, you have to look at things in the context yeah. of when they were made. And for 1974, that is very forward. Yeah. To, to have your, you know, protagonist, a female, pregnant, going to get an abortion, mm-hmm. doesn't want to get married. Yes. Yeah. You know, career and life orientated, out for herself, and not in a bad way. No. Um, I, I, I actually, I, I don't think that should be a, conceived in a bad way anyway, no. being out for yourself, you know, she loves herself, she knows what she wants. Um, I think that's very forward. Yeah. And Olivia Hussey does a fantastic she job does. playing yeah. these scenes as well, which really helps. Yeah. And also, I mean, who else can pull off that yellow trouser and jumper combination? Oh my God, slaying <laughs> it. Her collars are always popped. She looks great. Katie Even Cass- in that jumper where it looks like I- <laughs> someone's grabbing her boobs. Kate Cassidy. <laughs> Fucking hell. Have we, has there ever been a more dull final girl? Like, there's no personality there whatsoever. There's nothing to her. Uh, the only memorable thing is that... I a shit relationship. What? A shit relationship. Well, I was... <laughs> I was thinking more of the fact that the uh, the actress reminded me of Hilary Duff. <laughs> and I was just... And there were so many things she did. I was like, oh, my God, it's like Hilary Duff. Were they trying to yeah. get Hilary Duff? <laughs> well, poor Katie Cassidy. She uh, she had the bad remake curse, didn't she? What else was she in? Nightmare on Elm Street, When a Stranger Calls. Oh. Again, another, another really great modern actress who just gets really shit roles. Why? What, what has she been in where she's done a good performance? Supernatural, I believe she was in. Was good enough. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, hang on. Beautiful girl. Who said she gave a bad performance in Nightmare on Elm Street? It's a shit film, but was Katie Cassidy the worst thing about it? Absolutely fucking not. No, but she's not the worst thing about <laughs> Black Christmas 2000. No, she's, she's not, but she's up there, though. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a close. Call. Her character in particular is up there. She's just nothing. There's nothing. I couldn't care less. I always forget she's the final girl. But in all, every single one of those characters, mm. and I said this to you before, and we'll, we'll, uh, I'll say it now, is I only cared about them because of who was playing yeah. them. 
if they were played by anyone else, because that's a damn good cast, mm. if they were pay- played by anyone else, I could not give no. two flying fucks about any of the characters in that film. Yeah. I don't, know, I don't know why they didn't just give it to Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Well, the lead. Yeah. I don't know why she just wasn't the final girl. She's literally the on the DVD cover. The character would still be boring. Well, yeah, I suppose. She would, no, the thing is, you stan her. I stan her. But she would still have to be playing a really boring true, character. Imogen Poots, uh, I, I think, is the best performance of 2019. Not exactly a difficult... Thing, but I think she's great and a very oh, interesting. Oh, of the film of, of twenty nineteen. Oh, of, yeah, not of twenty nineteen. No, 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 no. Of, oh, of the film. Of I was like, film. oh my god. Um, yeah, great performance. Very interesting and layered character. Is very likable, uh, as a symbolism of uh, you know things that many women go through, and she's there as a character in that film to represent that. And... I think so. I wish she'd had a little more to do. Yeah. and to work with, uh, in terms of acting. Uh, but, yeah, she puts in a fine performance. Yeah. Um, I hated the hair, though. The hair was a choice. Hated the hair. Um, but, yeah, I mean, way more interesting than Katie Cassidy's character in 2006. Oh, absolutely. Fucking oh, my God. Leagues more. But the winner is Olivia Hussey, of course. I think so. I, I do think so. And, and props to, you know, the 2019 um, protagonist, but... Why do we Riley. Her fucking name? <laughs> Riley. But I do, I do think for the time that was very progressive. Yeah. Second main character, uh, I've got Phil, uh, played by Andrew Martin in 1974. Okay. Christine Cloaks Lee in 2006. And uh, Chris, played by... Uh, now, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Um, Elise Shannon. Uh, yeah, looks like Elise. Yeah, Elise, Elise Shannon. Elise, Elise Shannon. In 2019. Uh, yeah, Andrea Martin as Phyllis is great. She's not getting a lot to do. Um, and I've only put her as a second main character because she makes it almost to the end. She does. Um, but she's a sensible character. You know, she's likeable. She she gives a good performance. Um, just normal. Just a normal playing character. And sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, she has a very tight perm. Yeah, <laughs> very tight perm. She reminds me of um, it's in the Simpsons, the 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 guy from high school that's always trying it on with Marge. <laughs> um, is it Marty Fly? No, not Marty Fly. He's the guy in the sky. Um, but the one that's always trying it on with Marge, and then she sort of ditches him for Homer. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> um. But of course, Andrea Martin... She's not the most exciting character, I'm sorry. That's all I can think of. Of course, Andrea Martin as well, you know, I mean, bonus points for her for coming back in 2006 and giving us the best performance in that film. Um, Kristen Cloak as Lee is probably the most interesting character in 2006, Black Christmas. Artie Ziff. Artie Ziff is his name from The Simpsons. Kristen Cloak, um, Lee, probably the most interesting character in 2006. Who? Lee, Claire's sister, with a big camp entrance. Oh, eyeshadow. Yeah. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, she's generally the one I know the most about. Yeah. So. Literally, her story is, I can't find my sister. Yeah, and she was, and she was a legacy in the house. And that was more of a story yeah. than any of the other girls got. Yeah. And, and that, <laughs> her literal character you know, is, I can't find my sister. Yeah. 
And that is the most character development out of all of them. Well, no. Oh, apart from I'm, I'm, I shagged my friend's boyfriend. Uh, that, and uh, all of the character development went on the fucking villains. Yeah, no, of course. Of course, it was the 2006 <laughs> remake. Um, Elise Shannon in 2019, second best and only ever great performance in the film. Yeah, she does well, actually. Uh, she's very likeable. Always fighting for a great cause. After a rough start. She's, yeah. Uh, she's likeable. Who are we giving it to? Ooh, this is a difficult one. Um, I'm actually going to give it to Chris. Chris? Chris, Elise Shannon. Oh, I thought, I, thought saying, I thought you were saying Chris is short for Kristen Cloak. I'm not giving it to I was me. like, what? Chris, yeah, me and Chris go way back. Um, yeah, no, yeah, I agree, I agree. Um, the other girls is the only other thing I can think of for the rest of the cast. Yeah. So Barb, uh, played by Margot Kidder in 1974. Heather, Melissa, Lauren and Dana, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Michelle Trachtenberg, uh, Crystal Lowe, and Lacey Chaber in 2006. And Helena Marty and Jesse, played by Madeline Adams, Lily Donahue, and Brittany O'Grady in 2019. Margot Kidder is just a force in the original. She is great. She's funny. She is an absolute pleasure to watch. Um, great at playing drunk because she was actually drunk at the time. She's just so entertaining and makes such a big difference to the film. She's a great actress and I think it's a real shame that she wasn't as successful as maybe she could have been overall. But she puts in a great performance. It's not the biggest performance. No, but it's it's the memorable one. You know, she takes that first call. um, Well, she takes control of that first call. Yeah. Um, Yeah, But she has all the comedic scenes as well. I guess the best death of the film as well. She does, yeah, bless her. Um... She does way more than the four characters, the four other characters in 2006. No idea who they are. Alcoholic Lauren. And her is opinion, she an alcoholic or is she just drunk? She's just really drunk. Um, just drunk. I feel like she's the equivalent to Barb. Yeah. Um, her opinions on Christmas being darker than Halloween is a standout, I suppose. Heather, of course, Mary Elizabeth, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is cautious and sensible. And as I said, should have been the final girl. Um... If they developed her character a little more because you know fuck all about her, even though she's southern. The other two, I mean, Melissa's all right. I, I, I really couldn't care less. Dana might as well have not been in the film. Yeah. Um, They're just so such non-entities. Yeah, I mean, at least uh, with just names they can put on the poster. Helen and Marty and Jesse, at least they all have certain tropes about them. I mean, Helena turns out to be a villain. Um, Marty has a shit boyfriend and uh, Jesse's done yeah so. but it's, it's it's a film about camaraderie mm. and that does come across to a certain extent yeah um, yeah it's difficult I don't want to be too much of an arsehole but I think if the performances had been better yeah there might have been maybe a little more chemistry I think there. so and we would have got on more of that um, ant-like camaraderie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, overall, the winner is Margaret Kidder, so she beats yes, all of those. There's yeah. many, many different performances. Of course. The main male character, uh, Peter, played by Keir Dulia in 1974. Oh, Lord. Kyle, played by Oliver Hudson in 2006. And Landon... Goddy son. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. Kate's brother. And Landon, played by Caleb uh, Eberhardt in 2019. 
So, Kirdulia is, of course, he's a red heron. He's creepy. He does everything he needs to do. He does. In that role. He wears a turtleneck like no one else. <laughs> Oliver uh, Hudson is an unlikable sleazeball with his own personal sex tape collection. But other than that, like every other character in the film, so what? That, that's yeah. him. He's just unlikable. That's all there is to him. The, the, yeah. Caleb uh, Everhart is the most likable out of the three, but also the worst performance out of the three, because what the fuck was that? It's awkward, isn't it? It's a very so awkward wooden. performance, very wooden. Uh, I know he's playing an awkward person, but um doesn't mean you can be an awkward perf- wooden performance. No. <laughs> um, the winner is, of course, Keir Dullia. Yeah. Someone else who I'm surprised didn't have a bigger career than he did. Yeah. Um, I mean, this that was post Space, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Oh, strange. And finally, The Killers. We have oh, Lord. Billy, uh, played by Nick Mancuso, Bob Clark, and Albert J. Dunk. Oh. <laughs> All playing the same character in 1974. Billy and Agnes, played by Robert Mann and Dean Friss in 2006. And Professor Galson and his bro army, played by Carrie Owls and various others in 2019. Billy is obviously, you know... We don't even know if his real name is Billy. Um, we don't know anything about him. We never see him in full. Yeah, he's one of the creepiest horror villains. Absolutely. You know, just that one shot of his eye. Yeah. Is so much creepier. Yeah. Than the two films put together. Yeah. Really, just genuinely, and it, and and it, it's a weird one because obviously you've got Bob Clark as playing him, mm-hmm. but it's. It, it's Bob, The reason he is so scary is because of Bob Clark. Yeah. Not because of a performance. Mm-hmm. Not even because of a physicality. Yeah. Because really, he's not on screen that much. No. Um, it's mainly POV, point of view yeah. and such. But it's the creation of a character that you don't see in the film. Yeah. And what your mind creates as well... That adds to it. Yeah. And it's, for me, those phone calls. Yeah. Those phone calls are the highlight of the film and the scariest part. Yeah. 2006, we just see too much. Way too much. Far too much. You know, Agnes's face is so overdone with makeup to the point it looks like a Michael Myers mask and not one of the good ones. Um, And the weird emphasis on Billy's jaundice was just distracting like why was that a thing why did it need to be a thing yeah you know he, he, his face was the fucking brightest thing in the film yeah yeah. because it was jaundice yeah and that's the weird it, it's the kind of like so we've got this Billy so in the Billy in the original film you don't even know if his name's Billy yeah Billy in 2006 oh Billy he's got jaundice uh, he had an abusive mother um, he has a child through incest. Mm. Uh, he's a cannibal. Ate his mum. You know more about him than you know about anyone else in the film. He loves picking people's eyes out. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh my god, okay. You know, the first one he just he did dirty phone calls. Yeah, and murdered. This guy's got you got his fucking medical history. And then you got Kerry Owls again, someone who you don't who don't really know much about. 
But it's just really shit. It's just yeah. shit in the role. And I like the idea of it being an allegory for shit men. You know, with the whole, you know, having more than one and everything. That's great. But then it doesn't excuse the fact that this is in a horror film. So it comes across as generic when we see them in their cloaks and their shit masks, you know? Yeah. But again, it just throws it all out there at the end. It's yeah. like, oh, you know, and you try and catch something. Mm. And to compare it to Slumber Party Massacre again... Slumber Party Massacre, the killer in that, the killer in many, a lot of slasher films embodies toxic masculinity. Mm. Yeah. That film felt the need to show us mm. a physical toxic masculinity. Yeah. Um, it really could have benefited from some subtlety, as could have Carrie Ells' performance. Yeah. Really have benefited from some subtlety. Uh, so the winner of that round is, of course... Billy and the three actors who play him in the original. And our overall winner is, of course, Black Christmas 1974. Yes, yes, yes. You know, again, it's not a film that needs to be remade. A sequel would have been nice uh, if Bob Clark did it with Olivia Hussey yes. and John Saxon. That would have been great. Um, but, you know, maybe someone can make that work one day in the future. I mean, obviously John Saxon's not alive anymore. Olivia Hussey is. But, um, you know... It just, as a standalone horror film, it works. Yes. It is one of the greatest horror films of all time. It really, I, I, yeah, I genuinely recommend it. And I would also kind of recommend it as a gateway horror film. Yeah. Um, I, obviously, it's an 18, but, you know, I watched it when I was quite a bit younger. If you can handle the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you can yeah. handle Black Christmas. Um, so, yes, that is our original versus remake done for this month and this year as well. Yeah, for 2021. And so for our final best and worst of the month, is our best of the month going to be the same? Uh, for new films? Yeah. Yes, of course. I have Spider-Man No Way Home. I have Spider-Man No Way Home. Yeah. The, the film that potentially gave us COVID at the cinema. Um... <laughs> Gosh, telling the truth, why don't you? Um, but no, it that you know watching it at the, at the cinema was an experience. Um, it certainly was. Well, aside from that, it, it felt more like an experience than just going to watch a film. You know, you could feel the hype in the room. Everyone was applauding. It's a, it's a modern cinematic experience that takes things to new boundaries with superhero films. I'm not going to say why. Because, you know, go and watch it yourself. We don't want to give spoilers away. But it is phenomenal. Yeah, it's um, fan service, but the best kind of fan service. It makes sense of it. It works. It is a celebration of, you know, all, everything that's came before it. No matter, you know, there's references to the fucking video games in there. The animated series, the comic books, the other films. It all just comes together to... Create the ultimate Spider-Man film. It's just it's just a fun film to watch, and sometimes that's what you need. Yeah. You need to be entertained. Something I was not during the worst of the month. Don't you dare. The Housewives of the North Pole. <sighs> Shocking. Housewives of the North Pole, baby. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one's going to get that. So, someone's gonna get it no one watched that series um <laughs> I yeah no it's bad it's, it's bad. so fucking bad it's is this not your bad. worst of the month no it's not my worst are you of fucking month. serious you showed me Santa's summer house okay no worst what? new release new oh release new first. release oh I suppose that is a new release isn't <laughs> yes, it yes it is a new release 
Um, no, the worst of the month new release is The Bitch Who Stole Christmas. It's close between the two, but... It's close. At least uh, there's some great drag queens in Bitch That Stole that Christmas. That is very... And Carl Richards, how dare you? Carl Richards is not a drag queen. No, um, but she's on your most watched. She is, yeah, and her performance in this is fucking awful. She was good in Halloween Curls. I'm excited to see her in Halloween Ends, but fuck me. She was terrible in this. How can you have... A bunch of Real Housewives in a film that is essentially just ripping off a mixture of Death the Halls and Christmas with the Cranks and not have it camp, not have it fun. Like, seriously, even if this was bad, it should have been so bad it's good. It's not even that. It's just fucking boring and lazy and shit. And the biggest highlight is Lisa Barlow rhyming Trish with Kamish. And when that's the highlight of your film, you've got a fucking issue. <laughs> I, hope I hope it's Trish. More Kamish. Lisa Barlow cannot act. We're talking about Wooden in Black Christmas, my gosh. <laughs> but neither can RuPaul, so it's very That valid. is very true yeah. as well. <coughs> with, with the bitch who stole Christmas, that is that just uh, just as lazy. It's just a pile of shit. There's, we watched a few really shit Christmas films. Purposely. Purposely, you know, yes. hoping for trash the pieces. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, we got it with Believe in Santa Claus, the 40-minute animated masterpiece. Oh, stop. Are we going to get into that now? No, we're not. We haven't got enough time. We uh, we're, time. We're almost on three hours as it is. Um, <laughs> oh, is it really? Honourable mentions. Mrs. Santa Claus. What a pleasant surprise that was. Talk about feminist masterpiece. I know. <laughs> she Angela Lansbury invented feminism. Angela Lansbury invented <laughs> unionisation as well. <laughs> Fucking slaying the game in Mr. Santa. Bitch, you know I love Angela I, No, I, no, I agree. She can do no wrong in my Apart eyes. Apart from Mrs. Aristotle. She can do no wrong in my eyes. Remember the night? She can do no wrong in my eyes. <laughs> Remember the eyes. night? Remember the night. Uh, yes. Ah, oh, fantastic. Very Lovely good Christmas film. film. They, they don't do them like they used to, Christmas films. They really don't. Okay, boomer. I, fucking hell. I know. I know I sound like a boomer, but they really... What, the shittest films we watched in December were all Christmas films? But some of the best films we watched, older films, were Christmas films. Come On, Come On, great film. Yeah, great oh, new yeah, yeah that's good, yeah. Very good, Wacky Phoenix performance there. Make Way for Tomorrow. Oh, what a masterpiece. Yeah, absolute masterpiece. Everyone needs to watch that film. Um, don't normally mention it, but TV series, um, the new Chucky series and Twin Peaks The Return... Are both series we binged this month and both were fantastic. Oh, we're talking about TV no, series? No, not usually, but no. I think they both of those deserve a mention. Yeah, they do, actually. They're both fantastic. Really enjoyed Chucky. Really pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I wasn't surprised by Twin Peaks. I knew it was going to well, be yeah, a masterpiece, and it was. Um, speaking of Lisa Barlow, Real Housewives of Salt Lake City have been killing it. To all a good season. night. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, no. We're, I mentioned those two specifically because they're horror... For the podcast. Yeah. Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. It's, it's, it's real, horror. Yeah. It's horror. It's a cult, I suppose. It's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> trash, isn't it, really? Come on. To, ha- to All A Good Night. What was that? That was uh, the Christmas film directed by David Hess. Oh. Which I thought was absolute black. Friday the 13th owes a lot to that film. Does it? The exact same twist. Sorry Just, to ruin it, everyone. Ah. Like, it, sure. it rips off so much from Sean the Cunningham film. watched I think so. Again, Might have to do it next year. Uh, the Dawn That Dripped Blood was a decent slasher. Uh, a Christmas Horror Story. 
Yeah. Anthology. Yeah, it was Decent anthology. Right. Love Hard, nice surprise. Pleasantly surprised by Love Hard. White Christmas. Oh, uh, yeah, that was great. Fantastic. A Diva's Christmas Carol. Oh, <laughs> loved it. Um, Vanessa Williams doing a Christmas Carol, I mean, that's all we need to say. Tokyo Godfathers. Oh, we should have seen that way earlier than we do. What a yeah. fantastic film. Some Like It Heart. Uh, a first time watch for me, of course. Yeah, all-time um, classic. Great film. Encanto, which really, really good. Yeah, really enjoyed that. And finally, the Velvet Underground documentary. Yes, yes, on Apple TV. Um, if if you're a fan of Velvet Underground, you're going to love it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that is the end of this month's Original versus Remake. Uh, let us know on social media your favourite and least favourite films of the year because that is going to be Friday's episode. So uh, we're Horrorcore Trash over on Facebook and Instagram, Horrorcore Trash on Twitter. I'm Delight Gaz 92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram and GazCruise92 on Twitter. I'm Chris Barker 823 on Instagram, Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, yeah, rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, rate and uh, subscribe on Spotify, I think the thing we're saying now. Uh, like a follow on anything else. And yeah, uh, best and worst horror films of 2021. The end of year episode will be released on Friday. Let us know your favourites and least favourites. Next week, we will be starting the new year with Full Eclipse. The film in which Patsy Kensett plays a werewolf. <laughs> well, I mean, how else would we start the new year? I couldn't think of a better way. Last year, it was Charles Bronson running after a naked man down the street. Oh, my God. This year, it's Patsy Kensett. Has it been a year since up. we watched uh, 10 to Midnight? Yeah. Classic. Um, full Eclipse, the plot looks absolutely bonkers. I hope it delivers so we have enough entertaining stuff to talk about. Know, right? And next month's original versus remake will be My Bloody Valentine. Yes. In time for February. Fantastic. So yes, we will see you for our final episode of the year on Friday. Bye. Bye.